0: Hello, I'm television's Dara O'Brien, and I learned everything I know about comedy from the Jodcast.
1: Hello, I'm Carol Vordman, and the only thing worth listening to in a weekday afternoon these days is Jodcast. Here it comes.
2: I'm the Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees, and everything I teach the Queen about astronomy I've learned from the Jodcast.
3: It says here that I'm the famous TV science guy Brian Cox and I learned everything I know about charismatic science presenting from the
0: Jodcast. I think that's what it says anyway. (laughs) I'm the
4: BBC's one-show astronomer Mark Thompson and I learned everything I know about stargazing from the Jodcast. I learned everything I know about stargazing from the Jodcast. (laughs) Shocking.
5: I'm Chief Zookeeper Chris Lintott and you're listening to the Jodcast. Like doing science with Galaxy Zoo, but much less effort.
0: Hello, this is John Colshaw speaking against a lot of background noise which represents a nebulous area of a star-forming region. You are listening to the Jodcast, an astronomy podcast from Manchester University. You have
6: chosen wisely, wisely.
7: United in Radio Silence with your hosts Mark Perver, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast. March 2016, belated but live. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the March 2016 episode of The Jodcast, where for the second time in history, forming a large inhomogeneity of Jodcast listeners, we have a studio audience. Yeah. I'm Benjamin
3: Shaw. I'm Mark Perver And I'm Charlie Walker. And we've swapped our little studio out for a much larger one uh, that's been home to some of our rivals in the past, I think. Isn't that right, Chris? Um,
5: um, we've used it every so often. Yeah. Mm.
3: <laughs> once, once a year for the last five years. We've been going for longer.
5: <laughs> in many ways, uh, the Jogcast was the inspiration for Stargazing Live. So, uh, <laughs> can you bring us on there next year? <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll talk to Dara. Oh, I think
3: we get
7: paid much less. <laughs>
3: Um, but it does come with one really important rule. So before we begin, has everyone turned off their phones?
7: Yes. Excellent. So to help us celebrate the fact that the Jodcast has reached the age of criminal responsibility, we have some very special guests <laughs> with us. It's like he's never left. It's Jodcast stalwart, Dr. Matt Berber. Hi, Matt. Hello. How does it feel to be back? Have you missed us? Yes. Are you it's... among your people?
8: <laughs> <laughs> I hope so It's um, been a bit of a crazy setup, So that's nothing new And we've started almost on time Which is, is quite, quite new actually
7: I think that's the first time that's ever happened in Jodcast okay. history
8: mm, We've been going through a period of months Where it's
3: definitely not been coming out in the first of the month so. Has it's, it ever? <laughs> <laughs> April episodes, it usually does
7: <laughs> um, To my left we have a Jodcaster Who's famous for her furious defence of porridge It's Fiona Healy. Hi, Fiona.
9: Hi hi there, Ben and Charlie and Mark. I'm here uh, with the jawed mother, Dr. (laughs) Jen Gupta. I'm the chief zookeeper, Chris Lintot. Uh, and I'm feeling really left out. You know, you're so coordinated with your Jodcast t shirts, and I'm here with my astrology jumper that I got from the charity shop.
5: <laughs> You've no idea how far at the back of the wardrobe this was. Preserved <laughs> preserve, <laughs> preserve carefully in a presentation box. Oh, lovely. I got it out to wear it. To
9: I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually looking a little bit better preserved than Jen's one, I must say. It's because I wear mine everywhere. Yeah, wait. yours is in <laughs> use. You know, it's an action t shirt.
3: And to my right, we've got news veteran, Megan Argo, fresh off a plane.
1: In the news this month. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, I don't have news. I've been in Zurich, so yeah, no news, unfortunately. But I'm here with Dave Vault and Stuart Lowe, also veteran jogcasters from the very beginning. Yes. How does it feel to be back?
2: It's quite strange We feel like grandparents sort of.
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> are, are, are we great-grandparents by now? Yeah, that's oh, yeah. That well, many yes. generations there's, there's a lot of the Jodcast. Generations? generations Four generations Five You need several
0: Five, five. five.
1: Yeah. How up. old do you feel right now?
0: I left here in 2004 Yeah <laughs> <laughs> I feel you old You did, that's not yeah. a joke <laughs> It's, it's not actually a joke <laughs> I it wasn't, back do, do I I Jodcast. wasn't Jodcast. even here When the Jodcast started But, but first, before all of that <laughs> I'm going to hand it back To someone else
8: So in the show this time We've got interviews With all of these lovely people and our studio audience gets to grill eight captive experts with their questions in Ask an Astronomer
7: and we eat cake. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Yay!
8: <laughs> but before the cake and everything else, here's Ian Morrison with March's Northern
10: Hemisphere Night Sky.
5: And a round of applause. Oh. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I
10: I think I've been on every issue of the Jogcast since it began. Mm. So because I'm getting very old. Anyway, I'll probably sit down. That makes it slightly easier. Okay, so I think we can begin. Um, So I'll now put my Jodcast voice on. The night sky for March 2016. Well, it's still quite a nice month to observe the night sky. The evenings are still quite long. You should always start looking over towards west, because that part of the sky is going to disappear before too long. If we do so we'll find uh, the star Vega, just dropping down towards the horizon. Higher up a bit, we have the two constellations of Perseus and Cassiopeia. And if you go halfway between them, there's a rather lovely object, which is called, or pair of objects, they're called the double cluster in Perseus. And they're very nice to look at, either with binoculars or with a small telescope. Now, a lovely object to observe, and still just visible this month, is the Andromeda Galaxy. We normally tell people how to find it by starting at the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus. But that's a bit low. But there's an alternative way of finding it, which is just to find the V of Cassiopeia and just follow that downwards, and you should, with a pair of binoculars, come across the Andromeda Galaxy. It's a lovely object. I'm afraid with our eyes, or even with binoculars, we don't see an awful lot of it. The outer parts, the spiral arms, are really far, far fainter and you have to take very long time exposures to bring them up. Moving now towards the southern sky and that's still a lovely part, one of my favourite parts of the sky. We have the constellations of Orion and Taurus, Gemini, down on the bottom we've got Sirius and Canis Major. Um, You have that lovely pair of open clusters, the Hyades and the Pleiades and the Pleiades is one of my favourite objects to look at and I particularly love the region between Alcyon and Maia. And there's a lovely triplet of stars beside Alcyon. And between the two major stars, there's a doublet. And the upper right of those two stars is actually quite red. It's a very nice thing to look at. And then, of course, we have Orion. And below the three stars of the belt is the sword. And in the sword, we have the wonderful Orion Nebula. Again, with a small telescope, you can actually home in And you can see the four bright stars, the trapezium, at its heart. This is the light from those very bright blue stars, the ultraviolet light, which is exciting the hydrogen gas to make it glow that lovely red color. If we go towards the southeastern sky, we have Leo with its bright star Regulus. Below, of course, is Jupiter, we'll come to. Down to the left is Arcturus in the constellation of (laughs) Bootes. (laughs) Just having a slight stop. Why do they do this to you? (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, And high up, we actually have the uh, constellation of Ursa Major, with, of course, within it, the plough. And there's a very nice object in the plough, easy to find. It's the middle star of the three stars that make up the handle, um, Mizar and Alcor. And they're basically a double star system. You can see the binoculars with a small telescope you can actually see that one of them is a double itself. And in fact, between the two, there's a little red star. So it's a nice pretty thing to look at with a small telescope. Well, what about the planets? Well, it's pretty obvious that this is the month to see Jupiter. It comes to opposition in the middle of the month. And uh, it will be about 48 degrees above the horizon and around midnight. So it's visible basically all night. It starts March shining at magnitude minus 2.5. It drops slightly during the month. It's moving slowly westwards across the lower part of Leo towards the star Regulus. The size of the disk falls slightly from 44.4 to 43.7 arc seconds. Don't worry about that. With a small telescope, of course, one should easily see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere Sometimes the great red spot, and up to four, the Galilean moons, as they weave their way around it. Now Saturn, it's lying in the southern part of Ophiuchus, seven degrees up and to the left of Antares in Scorpius. And it begins its retrograde motion westwards across the heavens on March the 25th. It rises around midnight, and will be high enough in the south-southeast before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system, which has now opened out to about 26 degrees, almost as wide as they ever become. The diameter increases slightly during the month, up to 17.4 arc seconds, as does the magnitude, which drops from plus 0.5 to plus 0.3. If only it were higher in the ecliptic. Its elevation never gets above 19 degrees, and so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. Now Mercury. Mercury passes behind the sun, that's called superior conjunction, on the 23rd. So this is not a good month to observe it. But Mars, yes. It's moving eastwards relative to the stars, starting the month in Libra, and moving into Scorpius on the 14th, when it will lie very close to the star Acrab, which forms the uppermost star of the fan of stars that makes up the tail of the scorpion up to the right of Antares. It's best seen due south before dawn, but sadly, like Saturn, it'll then be only about 19 degrees above the horizon. As it's nearing us, or we're nearing it, the magnitude increases from plus 0.3 to minus 0.1 as the disk increases in size from 8.7 up to 11.7 arc seconds. Given some good seeing, which is meaning that the atmosphere is not too turbulent, some features on the disk should now be visible, such as the North Polar Cap and Certis Major. At opposition at the end of May, the disk will be over 15 arc seconds across. And finally, Venus. Well, Venus rises in the southeast about an hour before sunrise as March begins, at only about 25 minutes by month's end. Its magnitude stays steady at minus 3.8, as it slips into the sun's glare. A low horizon will be needed to spot it before it becomes hidden behind the sun in April. So finally, what about the highlights of the month? Well, as I've said, it's a superb month to observe Jupiter. Sadly, the peak elevation is actually reducing each apparition. The features seen in the Jovian atmosphere have been changing quite significantly over the past few years. For a while, the South Equatorial Belt vanished completely, but it's now returned to its normal wide state. In the Night Sky page, just search for Night Sky Jodrell Bank, I give a list of the times when it's easiest to see the great red spot as it faces towards us. On March the 5th, before dawn, Saturn, Mars and Antares make quite a nice triangle in the morning sky. Three things on the 16th. Before dawn, Mars is very close to Beta Scorpii. Literally, you can hardly split them. And that's the topmost star in the Scorpion's fan. That evening, the moon occults the star 26 Geminorum shortly after 7 p.m. The exact time depending on your location in the UK. It's a fifth magnitude star. And it will be occulted by the dark side of the moon, appearing again about an hour or so later. It's actually very nice to see a star suddenly disappear from view. Later that night, we have two very nice transits of Jupiter by the moons Ganymede and Io. Between about 9 and 11 p.m. on the 16th, first Ganymede and then Io will be seen to transit Jupiter with their shadows, which actually are much more obvious, trailing behind. On March the 20th, the moon will be nearing Jupiter sometime about 10 o'clock in the evening. Finally, I usually on the night sky page suggest some object to look at on the moon. And this month I've, I've talked about the Alpine Valley. It's in a very interesting area of the moon. And the 16th and 29th are good nights to observe it as it's close to what's called the Terminator. And that's when the shadows are best and things show up more clearly. Close to the limb, you'll find the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mari Imbrium. Towards the upper end, you should see a cleft across them which is called the Alpine Valley. It's about 7 miles wide and 79 miles long. A thin rill runs along its length which is quite a challenge to observe the dark crater Plato is also visible nearby and you might also see the shadow cast by the mountain Mons Piton lying not far away in Mare Imbrium it's really a very very nice area of the moon to observe so I hope that's given you something to look for during the month of March good hunting
8: Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogoshanu with the night sky in March, where you are.
6: Welcome to the month of March. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu, and tonight I'm your storyteller from Space Place at Khartra Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. As autumn starts in the Southern Hemisphere at nightfall, half of our galaxy, the Milky Way, arches across the night sky from north-northeast to south-southwest like a river flowing through the heights of the heavens. Its edge is towards the western horizon and its center rises in the east, at the fringe of our milky city of stars. On the north-western horizon, the Pleiades, the Shining Ones, the Tafiti, are preparing for the journey to the underworld. They are to disappear shortly behind the sun and will stay there for a while. The explanation goes that since people of old did not really have an explanation about space, in trying to figure out where exactly the Pleiades went, they invented an underworld. This is probably one of the reasons why this group of stars is so linked to stories of death rebirth and ancestors and used to mark the beginning of the year in some cultures the Pleiades are a very special group of stars they are located in the zodiacal constellation of Taurus one degree from the ecliptic which is the width of your pinky if you hold it at arm's length That is, if you can find the ecliptic, of course. The ecliptic is an imaginary line. It marks the path of the sun in the sky. Therefore, you can see the Pleiades practically from any place on Earth, any place where you can see the sun. They are very famous. People of old measured the quality of their eyesight by counting how many stars they could see there, probably still six, even if they are called the seven stars, as the seven married a mortal about two thousand years ago and was demoted from the heavens, according to an ancient Greek legend. Being so bright, packed and visible most of the time makes them unique among the objects that we can see in the night sky. But what do we see when we look at the sky? I always have been fascinated observing children looking at the sky. First, they see the moon. Then, as they get used to that, they start to see the planets as the brighter dots of light. The Pleiades are among the first stars in children's stories and they are indeed ciphered in many cultures of the world, almost all of them referencing the cluster. However, one culture above all has given it different names at different times of the year. This is the Maori culture. The following saying can be found in Taumata Oterama Rae. Korangi nui te atua matua katuku taku ihi he atua katuku taku ihi he tangata. The many stars adorn me, Puanga Rehua Takurua, they are here, but Matariki only comes once a year and at the same time each year. It is the sign of the Maori New Year. We shall then await the return of Matariki the Pleiades and watch them rise before the sun after the longest night of the year here in Aotearoa. Until then, we should bid farewell to the Tafiti, the Pleiades, as they slowly drop from the western horizon into the world of light. Above the Pleiades, Orange Aldebaran is also descending from the heavens, climbing up on the Milky Way, Betelgeuse and the big Egyptian dog Sirius lie on one side of the celestial river, whilst Procyon, the small Egyptian dog, lies on the other side. The three make a beautiful triangle. Its tip, marked by Sirius, the brightest star in the sky points at Canopus Atutahi, the cat star, as I call it, the second brightest in the sky, which, like a good cat, is watching over the earth from above. High in the sky, Canopus marks the midpoint between the center of our galaxy and its edge. The Milky Way then flows down from the sky through the false cross, the diamond cross, and the southern cross. The pointer stars hang from it. Beta Centauri and the third brightest star in the sky and our closest neighbor, Alpha Centauri. Low on the eastern horizon, the Milky Way ends in Sargas, the first brightest star to rise from Scorpius. Theta Scorpii has the traditional name Sargas, which it is believed to be of Sumerian origin. Sargas appears on the flag of Brazil, symbolizing the state of Alagoas. The Milky Way splits the sky in two. Through the north-eastern horizon runs the ecliptic, a lower arch, the plane of our solar system bearing the zodiacal constellations. They intersect the Milky Way right on the horizon, Taurus just setting, Gemini, Cancer, Leo carrying the bright planet Jupiter, then Virgo, Libra and the first stars of Scorpius rising. The ecliptic is, as I said before, the apparent path of the Sun on the celestial sphere. It also refers to the plane of this path, which is co-planar with the orbit of Earth around the Sun, and hence the apparent orbit of the Sun around Earth. The orbits of the planets are also co-planar because during the solar system's formation, the planets formed out of a disk of dust which surrounded the Sun. Because that disk of dust was a disk, all in a plane. All of the planets formed in a plane as well. Rings and disks are common in astronomy. And since our eight planets orbit roughly in the same plane, if you ever wonder where to see them in our sky, turn your gaze towards the ecliptic Chances are that bright stars that shine on roughly the same path where you would normally see the sun in the daytime are in fact planets. Planets are wanderers through the ecliptic, which is exactly what the name planitos meant in Greek, wanderer. They are following their own avenues in the celestial silence and their positions are given by coordinates called ephemerides. And since we put astro into biology, or the other way around, you might also wish to know that ephemerides are also some insects in the Amazon jungle that only live one day. Mars and Saturn appear in the late night sky. Mars rises after 11 pm, a little south of due east. It looks like an orange-red star. Well to its right is the star Antares, also orange but a bit fainter than Mars. Antares is Greek for rival to Mars. Now Mars is brighter than its rival and will continue to brighten as we catch up on it. Over the month, Mars will move down and right as it passes Antares. Saturn is directly below Antares, looking like an off-white star a little brighter than Antares. Saturn stays put through March, rising a little earlier each night. A telescope magnifying 20 times shows Saturn's rings. By the end of the month, Mars, Antares and Saturn make a large triangle in the east at 11 p.m. Venus. The brightest planet rises due east around dawn. At the beginning of the month, Mercury is below and right of Venus. Mercury sleeps lower as it moves to the other side of the Sun. It disappears mid-month. A total solar eclipse occurs on March the 9th, but it is not seen from New Zealand. The Moon's shadow crosses Indonesia and the western Pacific. On March 23rd, 24th, the full moon grazes the edge of the Earth's shadow. Around midnight, the top edge of the moon will look a little darker than the lower edge. Back to the evening sky, lower on the eastern horizon and close to the ecliptic, the third brightest star in the constellation of Scorpius is just barely visible. It was the Euphratian Sargas, lying in the Milky Way, just south of Lambda and Epsilon, with which it formed one of the seven pairs of twin stars. As such it was Maasu. And it might have been with Yota, Kappa, Lambda, and Epsilon, the Girtab of the lunar zodiac of that valley, the Vanand of Persia, and Vanand of Zogdiana, all meaning the Caesar, Smitter, or Stinger, but the Persian and Zoggian words generally are used for our Regulus. In Chorasmia, these stars were Kachman, the curved. Sargas is the most southerly bright star in the Scorpion, closely anchoring the sudden curve of the scorpion's tail, and invisible north of latitude of 50 degrees. The star's southerly position has allowed northern observers to use it visibly as a test of the night sky brightness near the horizon. I said earlier that this time of the year, the Milky Way is splitting the sky into two almost equal sides. We just looked at the part that holds the ecliptic, which in the southern hemisphere, here in Wellington, New Zealand, is located on the north part of the sky. Let's do some star hopping to get to the other side, in the south. One of my favorite sports, star hopping, is jumping from bright star to bright star to reach fainter stars. Ready, set, go! We'll start just above Virgo's brightest star, Spica, and try to locate Corvus, the Raven one of my favorite constellations. Corvus is now flying on the eastern horizon at 20 degrees of south declination, but 2,000 years ago it lay equally on each side of the celestial equator. Spica and the two stars of Corvus, al Gorab and Gienach, are in a line. The other side of the quadrilateral, that is Corvus, Algorab and Kratz Corvi make another line that extends all the way to the Grand Omega Centauri globular cluster, which is still on the northern side of the Milky Way. Further down, following the same line, you find Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star in the sky and our closest neighbour. Alpha Centauri and its pointer companion Beta Centauri point at the Southern Cross. Don't be fooled. There are many crosses in the Milky Way, only one is the Southern Cross. Higher up than the Southern Cross, the Diamond Cross carries a mirror image of the Pleiades. As they prepare for their journey to the underworld, at the fringe of our Milky City of Stars, on the northwestern horizon, the Pleiades, the Shining Ones, the Taffiti, leave behind here in the Southern Hemisphere, a doppelganger, the look-alike fake twin that never leaves the sky. Circumpolar to Wellington, the Diamond Cross can also be found by climbing up the Milky River two-thirds from the side and one-third from the center, and this is exactly where you will find the optical asterism of the diamond cross. At the eastern end of it, a pair of binoculars will reveal the Southern Pleiades, which is a group of stars that at first sight look like the letter M to me. The Carina cluster, also called the Southern Pleiades, has an astronomical resemblance to the famed northern star cluster M45 in Taurus. Even though the cluster is not Shape, like the Pleiades, is also easily visible with the naked eye, but best in binoculars. Quite young, about 30 million years old, and at almost the same distance from Earth, 500 light years away. And just like M45, the southern Pleiades is 15 light years across. And finally, on the other side of the Milky Way, in the southwestern sky, The Magellanic Clouds are our neighbouring galaxies, circumpolar here in Wellington and always a little elusive to the rigged side. The Magellanic Clouds are the best training objects for averted vision. Always look for them a little off to the side while continuing to concentrate on them. On the 1st of March, autumn officially started here in the Southern Hemisphere. It's a time of plenty, of harvest, and the beginning of the spectacular season of stars. Clear and dark skies from Space Place at Carter Observatory, here in the Southern Hemisphere.
2: I would say it was Jodcast listeners who actually made us start doing a Southern Night Sky. They requested it, so that's why they're now also at Southern Night Sky.
3: You got a series of emails in, asking one month after the next. Yes. Yeah, I was listening in preparation <laughs> for this. I was listening to all of your feedback. Yeah. All right,
8: enough heckling. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Haritina. And now for our interviews, we're going to go a decade back in time and take a look at the Jodcast through the ages. And we begin with our hallowed ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> at you the very dawn. <laughs> at the very dawn of the Jodcast as Megan Argo interviews doctors David Alt and Stuart Lowe about the early days of the show. Right.
1: That's Tell everybody what you had for breakfast, guys. Start the interview. Um, not very
2: much, really. Uh, even less than Francisco Graham Smith had at last Jodcast Live. <laughs> 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 Which
1: was for, what? For those of us that haven't listened,
2: um, he wasn't quite sure, but I think he decided in the end he had a piece of toast. <laughs> <laughs> Correctly. Okay, that's
1: and, what all the Astronomer Royals
0: and, eat for breakfast. Right.
1: Don't. Okay.
2: And
0: I, I think I should probably point out that I'm not actually a doctor. Um, I, I well, I am. I travel in the TARDIS on <laughs> in <hearing>
2: audio. <laughs> a different type
0: of. Doctor. But that's a different type of doctor. So um, uh, thank you very much for the promotion. <laughs>
1: So, um, yes, it's a bit bizarre being back in the same, well, studio as these two. We started, yeah, ten years ago doing yes, the Jog yes,
2: House. Yes, um, thank um, you very much for that introduction, making us sound like we're incredible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we do all have grey hairs to varying degrees. Well, you, I don't you have, just have as much hair now. <laughs> in, uh, this was brought me down to the <couch>. Um, but we also have a video message from one of the other founders of the Jodcast who sadly couldn't be here with us today because it's a bit of a trip from New Zealand and we don't quite have that kind of budget. So can we play the uh, the video message from Nick Rattenbury?
2: Dr Nick Rattenbury. Hello and happy
8: birthday to the Jodcast. I can't believe that it has been 10 years since Dave, Stuart and I sat down to discuss how we could produce a podcast from Jodrell Bank Observatory. I'm delighted that the JODcast is stronger than ever. The team there doing fantastic work, all those interviews and all the editing. It's brilliant to continue uh, what's a fantastic tradition now at Jodrell Bank. And thank you also to our audience, both long-term and new people who are listening to the JODcast now. Hello to all of you. I hope you're enjoying the JODcast as much as I am. And thank you also to the University of Manchester and the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics for continuing to support the JODcast. Everybody, happy birthday to the Jodcast. Uh look forward to hearing more from the Jodcast over the next ten years and even longer. Jod on. <laughs> <laughs>
11: Thank
10: cool. That's. Bank, I did, and we gave it to him when he
2: left and, and I made the every episode he'd been on. Poster for oh. him when you like, oh, much, much bigger it's a special now. the Jogcast Nick Rattenbury episode
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow that's a voice we haven't heard for quite a while mm-hmm. so yeah early days of the Jogcast so remind us how it started how
2: it started well I've been talking to Dave about this actually <laughs> on. Um, it started with uh, I was getting near the end of my PhD and I thought it would be nice to do a podcast and I didn't talk to anyone about that, about that. but then one day this was just after the end of my PhD. No, actually, it was, it was still just before. That's why I was slightly deranged, I think, <laughs> getting ready to hand in my thesis. A little
1: bit stressful for those of you that haven't done a PhD. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, not um, good for the, the brain cells. And
2: I had done an Ask an Astronomer session out at the Visitor Centre here at Jodhul, and Nick had, had been involved in that as well. And we were talking in the corridor with someone who, who shouldn't remain nameless, um, <laughs> Paddy <laughs> Lee, Dr. Paddy Leahy from Jodhul Bank <laughs> Centre for Astrophysics. Um, it was a bit curmudgeonly, and told us we were wasting our time because we were only talking to about 50 people. And we said, well, how many people would be a good amount of people to talk to? And he, I think he just picked a number out of the air and he said a 1,000. So we set that as the paddy threshold. Because <laughs> um, that's, that's what he, he told us we would require. And Nick said, well, there's these things called podcasts that people are doing, and perhaps we should do one of those. And I said, well, I've been thinking about that as well, um, so I'm definitely up for doing that. And then we went through into the room where, where I worked And we were continuing talking about that, and Tim O'Brien came in the door. I'm not sure why, if he was just joking with us, or if he didn't really hear us, (laughs) but we we said, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to try and do a podcast. And he said, well, a Jodcast. And we said, no, but that's the name for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's our origin myth, apart from the fact that a week later, so Dave had gone off at this point um, to do other things, but a week later, out of the blue, Dave just emailed and said, so have you all thought of doing a podcast about astronomy?
0: I don't actually remember this.
2: <laughs> no, no, I, I get, it'll be in all my email somewhere. Yeah. But, so basically, um, everyone independently came up with the same idea to do a podcast, and it just had to happen.
1: And it went from there. And I believe we also have a clip from the very first Jodcast See, episode. Which <laughs> <laughs> this is your life
2: in Hello the Jodcast. There. I'm Stuart Lowe, and this is the Jodcast, a podcast about astronomy by astronomers at the University of Manchester's John Ormanke Observatory. Each month or so, we'll tell you some of the latest things happening in astronomy. We'll also tell you what you can see in the night, and sometimes the daytime skies. And we'll be interviewing any astronomer that happens to be passing by, or those that aren't screening their calls. You'll notice that that's the, sky, that's the night sky, Ian's music there, because mm. we hadn't quite got ourselves sorted at that point.
0: <laughs> no, I, I just... When when we'd got all of the audio for the first episode, we'd recorded it in in one of the rooms in in Jodrell, and uh, and I took the audio back home to to, the, to Birmingham, and then I was just trying to. I, I thought we need a theme tune for this, and so I, I was sort of going through all of my free music CDs, you know, the, the sort of CDs where you pay once and then you can use royalty free. That's the words I wanted, <laughs> royalty free music CDs, uh, and it's like what what sounds like a sort of slightly quirky um, astronomy podcasty kind of music and um, having listened to all of it I just went with the stuff that we have now <laughs> so should we have. should we
1: do we have every now and then we talk about changing the music and we have uh, a veritable riot on what the forum used to be so can we have a show of hands who likes the theme music
2: that's nobody for people that I <laughs>
1: <know>. <laughs> who hates it
0: cool well, who that's hates it, but won't admit
1: <laughs> <laughs> we like it that's why we keep
2: it Cool. I think well, yeah, music is always a bit controversial anyway, mm. when yeah. people change the music on things. Mm. I'm no. sure if the Sky at Night ever changed, it's Sibelius or something.
5: In Sibelius, it's not happening. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so one thing I noticed in that first intro there is you say every month or so, which was nicely covered for the fact that we weren't always quite at the start of the month.
2: And also that we didn't know if we'd be able to make it, a monthly it, podcast mm. or not.
1: Yeah, and it worked out quite well.
2: It did, and then listener demand. I don't know why we ever (laughs) constantly did what listeners demanded because it just meant more work for us. Um, But we ended up doing the twice monthly shows. Yeah,
1: Um, we we don't have feedback forms for you today, right? So if you want to leave us suggestions, that's fine. But we we don't we don't actually have feedback forms. Maybe we should have done.
2: (laughs) Well, we did do we did do some surveys at some point in the past. I don't know if they've been done since just Uh, to find out about you all. (laughs) So we could not. Well, we didn't send anyone spam ever.
1: Um, so, what's been your favourite memories of actually doing the Jodcast over the years? Because you've both been involved at some level for quite a long time.
0: Yes, I think I, I was the. the I've, I've been the person that has had very little connection with Jodrol, who's but, actually been. But yeah, but you I,
1: still do the panto every year. I still do. Then the this panto is the man responsible for yes, the panto scripts every year. So,
0: <laughs> Charlie made me do it. blaming <laughs> him. Um, Yes, one uh, of my favorite. Well, I think the last Jogcast live was. I, I really enjoyed that, uh, and I- and for me, I because I wasn't a sort of a professional astronomer, really. I-, I that's why I decided to do the intro outros because I could I could act, I could do that. <laughs> I couldn't necessarily talk about astronomy, but um, so that's why I did those. Uh, and I've got some favorite ones, but um- go on, tell us. Oh, darling. <laughs> um- <laughs> Uh, the the Torchwood outro was my favourite, where, where it was aliens invading Jodrell Bank. I, I enjoyed that one. And what
2: I was always impressed by is that we could we could get fairly senior people to just record ridiculous lines for us. <laughs> yes, there's, there's actually like the controller of Jodrell Bank at the time. He recorded some lines and
0: yeah, and yeah, and people from the visitor centre recorded lines. We had all sorts, yes. of <laughs> and then it was all got smashed together. It's great. Um, but yeah, I think my favourite memory is probably Jodcast Live, definitely. And, and I'm hoping to make a new wonderful memory today.
1: <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here this time because because I was in Australia for yes. the last Jodcast Live, so I was supposed to be a floating head on a screen like Holly from Red Dwarf. But I think we ran out of screen space on yeah, the wall, the and I ended up being a disembodied voice. So yeah, <laughs> it's nice to actually be here physically. It's kind of cool after doing the news remotely for so many years. So what was your, what was your favourite memory, Stuart, from from your I think, well, the years my favourite of...
2: episode of the Jodcast in making it was the April Fool's edition Mm. in 2010, Um, just because... (laughs) I decided to get slightly crazy and went back in time and pretended we had a podcast in 1990.
1: A recording oh, sorry, on, a tape. <laughs> on tape. sorry, a podcast because it on tape and sent out. And it turns
2: out cassette tapes don't last that long very long. Well. So it was a Beautiful. good job that we recorded with our standard Jodcast kit because we had to use that and then overlay tape effects from the cassette tape on top of it. Um, because otherwise you would have all just... You would have been banging your head against the table trying to listen to the audio quality. It was terrible. I mean, people complained about our audio quality early on in the Jodcast, but it was nothing as bad as... Recording on a 20 year old cassette tape mm-hmm. But it was, it was just That episode was fun Because it was 20 years since Hubble had launched And new things were happening with Hubble And it, it was just And then Kobe had been launched and we were on plank Everything just felt nicely 20 years, things had progressed quite a bit In various fields, so it was nice to see how What we thought of the world Or the universe rather 20 years ago, and how that changed or stayed the same.
1: Well, there's been quite a lot of changes in astronomy over the 10 years since we started the JOGcast, right? We've mm. seen a lot of yes. quite important discoveries and things happen, Yeah, even in the few... last few weeks. Yes,
0: gravitational waves, of course. And hopefully someone might ask us a question in Ask an Astronomer about
2: <laughs> gravitational waves. <laughs> and I should say Planck as well, because I worked on Planck. So the Cosmic Microwave background, we've got even better measurements than we had um, ten years ago, far better.
1: The maps are pretty beautiful. Yeah, yeah. even if I say so.
2: <laughs> I, I'm very pleased. I've got an umbrella with the Planck sky on you, <laughs> and inside of the umbrella, that's probably my. I worked for a few years on Planck. That's what I got. That was my happiest thing. You can hold it up and pretend that you're looking at the at the microwave. I
1: spent sky. ten years working on this telescope, and all I got was this crummy umbrella. <laughs>
2: well, no, it's not crummy. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And you're still wearing a Jodcast t shirt as well. Yours doesn't have. look like it's 10 years old, I have no, to say. No, this is,
2: this is um, from fairly a little It's definitely before Jodcast Live, last Jodcast Live. Right,
1: okay.
12: Um, I also
2: have one of the only two Jodcast hoodies exclusive. <laughs> Jen has the other one.
12: I'm going to point out there are actually three because I had to hand make oh. one. I made a stencil and stenciled the Jodcast logo onto, logo onto the back of a hoodie one year for NAM before my official one turned up. Very
2: good. <laughs> <laughs> so there are three there. Sound correct? But also, I should. Add one thing, Chris Lintott actually appeared on that episode in 1990 Because he wrote a letter in <laughs> <laughs> We actually we wrote the letter for him But
5: um,
2: he, did, he did say that we could write a letter on his behalf He didn't know what we were going to write <laughs> But that, that was about exoplanets I mean, exoplanets is a big thing that's changed since 1990 mm. I mean, even in the last ten years of the Jodcast The number of exoplanets has just gone through the roof
1: So do you still listen to the Jodcast? Big question I'm going to put you on the spot now Do you still listen?
2: Uh, to I what you started People used to come up to me Jodcast listeners and say "Oh, It's ages since I've listened to the Jodcast I'm very sorry And I found myself getting into that Myself and coming up to the current Jodcasters And saying oh, I'm really sorry I've not listened to it for a while But I have actually been listening to the last I don't know, six or so quite regularly
1: um, Is that because of Jodcast Live? Partly <laughs> <if you're laughs> checking,
2: checking up on what everyone's up to but I also, it was partly because I didn't want to feel that I was going to start saying, oh, no, you should be doing it this way. I definitely wanted, didn't want to be one of those people coming back and saying, oh, you're doing it all wrong.
0: Uh, I, I must admit that I have fallen, out of, fallen oh. out of regular listening. But I listen to the pantos.
11: Of course. <laughs> I, I would hope so.
1: <laughs> See how far we butchered your script.
0: Uh, the script was already butchered anyway. <laughs> I, I, I realised that when it was actually... Hmm? No, no, oh yeah, when, when I was actually doing it, yes.
1: So how do you think the current Job cast team are, are doing in there? In
0: well,
1: there, don't ask that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask that question. Well, Come
2: on. I think they're doing very well. They are. Yeah.
0: Yes. It, it,
2: I mean, this is a lot more professional than I remember The <laughs> first Jugcast. They, they
0: had been. a rehearsal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. And there's, I mean, there's proper chairs set out, yeah. and the tables have all got University of Manchester logos it's on it. Yeah.
12: Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that's making it sound like we made everyone stand up at the last <laughs> job. <laughs> <laughs> we
2: did have chairs.
3: No, Apparently, you had be, some really comfy chairs at the last job. We, we, like. we did, and these
1: are, these are pretty good. Well, this is because the furniture in the tea room has changed, so we had to go with what's in the tea room. <laughs> see, The high back chairs that made it look like uh, an old folks' home have now gone, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> some people will be pleased to hear.
0: Because the Jodcast has been recorded in some very interesting locations. Such as uh, Jen and I on a bed in America, and, and well, we've done me, me on a bed in a travel lodge near Preston, of yeah. 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 Uh, we've done it on outside in Milan as well, as, as in the jodcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify, yeah. um. <laughs> this is a family show, remember? Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> Jen and I have recorded a jodcast outside in Milan, and we've had some outside broadcast-type interviews. I think didn't yes. we
2: interview yeah. Tim once on the top of a mountain in Chile. I vaguely remember that we did that Quite one. possibly I mm, uh, remember no. Did you
3: have a much bigger budget back then?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so the job has never really had much of a budget So we've always had to make do with what exists So Tim happened to be on an observing trip And we just Skyped him And said, Tim, let's talk to you about what you're doing <laughs>
11: Because it
2: makes it seem a bit more exciting Than just talking to someone in the tiny little studio um, in Manchester Mm-hmm. The studio um,
1: is possibly a slightly grander term for it.
2: Yeah, none of you really want to see it. It's, it's literally a space behind a screen in a lecture theatre um, mm-hmm. that is actually for storing chairs. Um, and we, were, we got turfed out of various rooms um, in Manchester and eventually realised that that didn't have a number on it because it was just a, a random space. So no-one was going to turf us out of it. Um, so that's how we ended up in that little studio yeah
1: we moved the chairs installed some partitions and a piece of, of what carpet. Was it, carpet on the table and a DVDs. duvet on the wall it's yeah it's it's top quality but it works
0: yeah it's very professional <laughs> I only saw it once as well <laughs> I only managed to, to get it to Manchester in- no no I don't no. think so Uh, Because I never, I never went to Manchester. I was always (laughs) stuck in Birmingham. (laughs) So I never, for for the five years I presented the Jodcast, I never actually saw a Jodcast studio.
1: Well, sometime you should come and visit both (laughs) of you. You should come to Manchester and we should record in the studio properly.
2: We can all fit in. We could do Jodcast live from the studio. That would be fun. That would be interesting. (laughs) You'll have to be very, very cosy. Thanks very much,
3: guys. And now we're going slightly forward in time, so I'm going to promote you from host to interviewee along with Jen Gupta. And Fiona Healy is going to be talking about the next stage in the job costs: evolution. Evolution.
9: Okay, Uh, hi there. Um, uh, I'm here with Dr. Jen Gupta and Dr. Mark Perver. I have my interview questions written on my arm <laughs> uh, but the first question uh, it appears I must ask you is what did you have for breakfast this morning? I've said this quite a few times already today I, I had a slightly um, you're making me relive it a
12: slightly fun <laughs> because my brother-in-law was not paying attention to my breakfast.
8: <laughs> Toasted cheese sandwich for me.
9: Well that, that? sounds really tasty. It's pretty good. Yeah? <laughs> Much better.
8: Can everyone in the back here by the way is that yeah okay good.
9: Excellent. Okay, let's get on with it then. Um, So, so Jen and Mark, you've both left Manchester and gone on to um, kind of exciting things. Uh, So do you want to tell us what you're up to now? Maybe Mark will start with you.
8: Okay, yeah, Well, I'm um, living in London now, and I've moved on, not entirely from astronomy, I'd like to think, but I'm now working on um, statistics for the government and the Ministry of Justice, and it's all about... um, re-offending rates amongst criminals. Um, so okay. it, 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 you might think it's slightly different, but I used to, I used to work on pulsars. So we had... <laughs>
9: <laughs> well, they, they, they also redo things, pulsars, don't <laughs> they? Yeah.
8: Well, essentially, you've got populations of pulsars and you've got populations of people... And <laughs> Some of the pulsars were better behaved than others.
9: Okay. And
8: let's say some of the people are better behaved than others as well. Right. And we're—I—I I used to like the best-behaved pulsars, but now we're looking at some of the less well-behaved people. Okay. Um.
9: <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's—it's uh, um, it's possible that a lot of people don't realise how many astronomers end up going into data science. I mean, it's really a job that a lot of us end up doing because even though it might seem like a different job, a lot of the skills kind of overlap.
8: Definitely. Yeah, they do. Um, Sometimes people say, well, what... I hope no one in the audience does, but sometimes people say, what is the point in astronomy? Um, (laughs) Which is a sensitive question, because in some ways it feels a bit of a a, a luxury to do it. But actually, I think one of the things is that people who are trained through astronomy are often seeded into into other analytical sort of jobs and end up doing, doing different things. But maybe if I hadn't had astronomy as a sort of carrot, I would never have got into... You know research yeah. in general
9: so um do you do you find working for the government much different to working in academia
8: it is, um, it is a bit different <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> it's it's good um there is a sort of difference in the environment because people tend to come in around nine and they tend to go home around five. Oh and, wow and,
9: what's and, that like <laughs> the <environment.
8: laughs> strangely the office is, is mostly a place of work and um in academia, you'll find there's a not a particularly clear delineation between people who are working, people who are living other. Rest I, I of their do lives. know some people
9: who have literally lived in the office. Yeah. Well, if, I can
8: bring, if you to ask, what was one of my favourite jobcast memories? I once went into the jobcast studio, where, as it was explained, there's a lot of. Um, audio damping things, which is things like duvets and carpets and stuff, and and I went in and I saw a pair of feet, and then um, <laughs> someone was asleep on the table with, with a duvet on top of them.
9: <laughs> so oh, that,
8: no. that doesn't really happen in, in my job. In now.
9: the government. No, not no. really, in the I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> so, Jem, Jem um, is now working at the University of Portsmouth, is that right? Yeah, that's right,
12: want- but um, I'm not working in research, I'm the outreach officer for the department, okay. so I coordinate all the schools outreach, all the public engagement, try to encourage all of our researchers. Um, A lot of people don't realise that we do cosmology um, in Portsmouth, um, but it's the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation. There's about 65 of us um, from PhD students um, upwards and yeah, trying to encourage all of them to to go out and share what they're doing um, with the wider world.
9: Wow, that sounds like a really rewarding job.
12: It's quite nice and again I'm in a, I'm in a bit of a weird position where I think I'm the only person in my department who does kind of stick to the the sort of 9, nine to five. unless I'm out with the inflatable planetarium in which case I stick to the sort of 7 in the morning to uh, about 3 in the afternoon. Oh, I used to but I
9: used to have to use one of those. They're fun. Aren't they're they? so much fun. Oh, God. Yeah. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> kind of gets smelly after a while though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
12: Deciding to focus on secondary schools with the Astrodome may not have been my um, no. most sensible moment <laughs> 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 in Portsmouth. Uh, but, you, you know, it's, it's so rewarding. There's been more than one occasion where we've taken the Inflatable Planetarium into a school, and there's been a child who's been um, a little bit disruptive but obviously really into it. So they've been, like, answering all the questions but being quite loud. And then one time I remember one of them, like, came up and they, like, thanked me. Like on at the Aww. end, and I was like, even if that was sarcastic, uh, thank you. Um, and then he was like, no, 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 that was sincere. And then he he left, and the teacher said that 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 boy was actually normally. Um, taught in isolation because he's so disruptive in wow. class and yet he sat through the Astrodome show, he got really into it and so those kind of things are just so rewarding and is why you know I love my job.
9: That's wonderful, that's yeah. fantastic and uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your spare time?
12: Yeah, <laughs> in my spare time I work in the planetarium at Winchester Science Centre and <laughs> um, they have a monthly singles night which is a fantastic um, evening to work at, I go do a live planetarium show there once a month and then in my spare spare time I help. To run the Winchester Science Festival, um, so my boss keeps on telling me. My boss at Portsmouth keeps on telling me that I need some new hobbies. So I bought a dog. That kind of helps. <laughs> yeah, he
9: bought a dog. Does he, yeah, does he help you with your astronomy.
12: And he's got a starry collar. Oh, um, he was looking at the moon the other morning. <laughs> What's his name? His <laughs> name's
9: Alfie. Oh, that's nice. He's that's very amazing. cute. So, uh, so back to you, Mark. Um, so. Um, we were we were talking about this a little bit before um, before I came on, and what Mark is doing is actually quite interesting. Um, so, would you mind telling us a little bit more about? Even though it's not astronomy, um, yes. Would yeah. you mind telling? Are us you allowed
7: more? to? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, that's
9: yeah. it. That's if you're allowed. I mean, I, in my head, Mark is some kind of double O seven yeah. type person who works for the government and can not tell us a single thing that he does. <laughs> it's not
8: that secretive, though. Um, it's, it's not Mi Five, though. Okay.
9: Um, Are you sure?
8: Well, I couldn't tell you. Wouldn't you wouldn't tell us who it was. <laughs> I feel like it's, yeah, you know, it's a bit different to astronomy, even though it's not a million miles away, yeah. but essentially what, what we're looking at is not just re-offending rates in general, but are um, re-offending rates going down as a result of um, people who've committed offences receiving some kind of treatment or some kind of intervention so. to help them to hopefully change their behaviour?
9: Okay, so in terms of like data, so so you look at... You look at a bunch of reoffenders, and you look at kind of things that have happened, and then presumably you take your graphs and show them to David Cameron, and, <laughs> <laughs> like and David Cameron says, "Oh yes, very good, Mark." Goes, <laughs> well, <laughs> Is there, that what happens?
8: Um, that's, not, that's not quite what happens. But um, we, there's, a lot, there's, um, there's a lot of people out there, who a lot of groups out there, who are working with with offenders and trying okay. to, you know, to to get them to change. And um, I guess sort of what I have found out about as statisticians trying to analyse them uh, they're moving from astronomy which is pretty pretty complicated yeah. is, that, is that people can be uh, maybe the most complicated things in the entire universe <laughs> um, I should think so <laughs> everybody here is the, the end product of about 3 billion years of evolution or something and it makes them pretty complicated so it's
9: probably pretty hard to fit a linear regression to that
8: Um <laughs> That's exactly what we try to do. Then, <laughs> so essentially, you have to compare one group of people to another group of people, okay. um, and so we're comparing the behaviour of people who have received a certain treatment uh, with the behaviour of, of, of a control group, which is a bunch of people okay. who've not received that treatment. Yeah. And because you never get a random trial, you never get to uh, take a bunch of people and, and put them in one group or the other. We try and match them together from what we've already got. Okay. So we'll say, okay, here's a person who, who received this treatment. What was their age? How many previous offences? What type of previous offences? Do they have any particular um, problems that we know of? And we try and match that with a, with a similar person in the control group. And then we just look at the reoffending rates over okay. a year between cool. the, the treatments and control groups. Wow. And hopefully, for the people who, who are conducting the treatments, they'll find the reoffending rates among the treatment group. Is lower than when the control cool
9: group. So, so it's really very scientific.
8: It, um, yeah, it is yeah, scientific. Cool. And, um, <laughs> um, sometimes, you are a
9: scientist, yeah. okay. So. <laughs>
8: sometimes you get the result they're looking for, sometimes
9: not, but we have like to. Like astronomy. <laughs> we,
8: have to, we have to tell them straight anyway.
9: Yeah. What's cool. Happened. Okay, um, so back to you, Jen. Um, so I was reading Jen's blog in preparation for this interview. She's done a lot of really, really impressive stuff, including being um, commended uh, for an Asian Women of Achievement Award. Um, yeah, that was a really weird experience. Really, so, what? So, <laughs>
12: was highly, highly commended in the the Young Achievers category at the Asian Women of Achievement um, Awards last year. But it was just yeah. So I, I um, my my boss put me forward. It's um, a scheme run by the same person who um, runs the Women of the Future Awards. So my boss. Dr. Karen Masters w- uh, won the science category in the Women of the Future okay. um, in a previous year, so she put me forward for this. I then had to go to an interview. Um, I was shortlisted, went to an interview um, with um, it was someone who was very high up in sort of human resources and shell and the person who's in charge of the London Stock Exchange. Okay. And one of the Queen's secretaries was meant to also be on the judging panel, but I guess the Queen had an emergency that day. The Queen day, is, um, Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so they weren't there, and they sort of, like, quizzed me about what I did and, and and all that kind of stuff. And then we went all along to this award ceremony. I took my mum. Uh, cool. We got all dressed up in the um, traditional outfits of uh, my mum's tribe in India. Oh, wow. We were all, like, glammed up and, and went along to this awards. Didn't win, but, uh, yeah, just a very surreal experience. Experience, okay. but really, really good. Like, yeah. really nice to be put out of my comfort zone, but definitely out of my comfort <laughs> yeah, zone.
9: because <laughs> your comfort zone, I believe, is more um, science comedy.
12: Yeah, this is something that Mark and I have both done, and I actually got into it because one of Mark's friends um, runs, or does he still run? Still runs uh, Manchester yes, does, Bright yeah. Club. Yeah. So, Bright Club is um, Bright Club. is a, set, a series of events where researchers are uh, turning into comedians. And so, I did that in Manchester basically because I think I was in the car with Mark and Rick after one of these and they were like you're going to do this so I did okay. it so it's all thanks to Mark um, but I've done a sort of done a number of them uh, went to London to do a big bright club went up to the Edinburgh Fringe and then this year it seems that um, I've done, a, done, done quite a few ones so I did a really fun event um, early this year in London called the um, Festival of Bad Ad Hoc Hypotheses um, that's a bit of a where <laughs> Where people, um, it's basically like a fake conference and you have to okay. um, come up with a, a stupid sort of hypothesis um, that's completely ridiculous, but you have to present it in a scientific way. Um, and I was invited along to be the keynote speaker, so I came up with a few different ways that we could fix the world's problems with um, big data. Um, so, for example, I decided that to, to counteract global warming, all we need to do is move the Earth further away from the sun. So just capture an asteroid, um, Seems move away. We could um, uh, we could solve the energy crisis by just building. I was inspired by Ralphie for this one, building giant hamster wheels, but for dogs and children, and then we can put them to turbines. Um, because I've also got a five-year-old nephew, and watching my dog and, and my nephew together is just exhausting. Watching them, so I thought we might as well harness that energy. I feel
9: um, I feel like that that would actually work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
12: And, and, uh, w- in the process, I discovered that someone has made a human-sized hamster wheel. So you know, <laughs> I've been in a human.
9: Say it's hamster wheel.
12: <laughs> yeah, but no, that's that's a lot of fun. I think I really like trying to sort of get science across in different ways and yeah. engaging with audiences that maybe wouldn't come to a science talk, but they might come to a comedy night. And then bam, you you hit them with some science. Great. I also did a really good one um, at the National Astronomy Meeting a couple of years ago. We had it in Portsmouth and we put on a comedy night. Um, and I was essentially uh, Chris and John Colshaw came along. Um, and did a set, so I was essentially Chris's warm-up hat, <laughs> which I think <laughs> is my proper place in, in the scheme of
9: things. <laughs> cool, well, let, let me consult my notes here.
12: <laughs>
8: <laughs> that was the two-minute warning just
9: then. Oh, was there? Well, yeah. in that case, uh, in that case, that's uh, my cue to go to a special message um, from another Jodcast veteran who couldn't be with us here today um, because she's in Canada. Um, so, George, could we bring up now um, the video from our very dear friend. Hello there,
13: Live. Greetings from Canada. I'm sorry I couldn't be there today, but sadly there's a rather large body of water between here and there, so <laughs> this is the best I could do. I had a lot of fun doing the JobCast over the years, and some of my favorite memories are when we were coming up with ideas to play around with the April Fool's Day episode. Uh, the Machines Taking Over the JobCast is still possibly my um, favorite episode to date. Um, and also, recording the pantomime was just absolutely so much fun. Um, you have no idea of the, the voices uh, that people have and can come up with when recording a pantomime, which is absolutely fabulous. Um, I think my most bizarre job cast moment was probably during the, um, the Nam 2012 episode, where we did a podcast a day. And my episode was on the same day as the conference dinner. And I cut the timing a little bit fine because it had to be recorded, um, edited, proof and released uh, before the conference dinner. And I ended up re- uh, releasing it somewhere down Oxford Road from my phone. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably not the only person to have done that over the years. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a little bit about my time at the Judcast. And thank you very much for letting me be part of Judcast Live. Jot on.
9: So that talking head, everyone, was um, Dr. Christina Smith. Um, and uh, I'll remind you that I've been here with Dr. Mark Perber and Dr. Jen Gupta. And thank you very much for listening to our interview.
7: Thanks for that, Fiona. Now- I don't know about you, Charlie, but sitting at the back doing nothing is actually getting quite tiring, and I think we deserve some cake. I'm
3: exhausted, but that might just be the preparation that we put in. Quite <laughs> possibly, yes. <laughs> um, but we can hand over to our resident pulsar hunter, Sally Cooper, and to all of you guys uh, to put together what might be the biggest Ask an Astronomer panel we've ever had. So, Ask an Astronomer. Over to you, Sally.
14: So, hello, everyone. Uh, I am Sally, and I am Manchester's resident pulsar hunter, and... Um, <laughs> you may have seen the back of my head on Stargazing Live. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I am going to um host the Ask an Astronomer session. So first of all, I'll well I'll let you all introduce yourselves one by one. Uh just say your name. Uh this is going to be the panel who will be answering your questions starting at this end.
10: Okay, I'm Stuart Light. Uh I'm Ian Harrison. I'm David Alt. Ian Morrison. Mark
14: Perver.
15: Chris Lintop George Bendo
14: Jen Gupta. Okay, great. And I believe some of you have got questions that you're going to read out. And we are going to start with Eleanor. If the universe is growing, what is it growing into?
12: (laughs) And if we could go to the edge, could we get out?
14: And I'll pose that to Jen and Mark.
12: Yeah, I think i volunteered to uh, kick this one (laughs) off. Nice and simple. Thank you for that question. That's a really good question. I love answering this question because I find it really hard to think about. Um, Because if you talk to cosmologists, and I spend most of my time talking to cosmologists in Portsmouth, um, they say that the universe is infinite, in which case it's not expanding into anything because it is everything, which is a really horrible thing to think about um, but I have two ways to try and explain this to you to help it so imagine um, when we talk about infinity and, and the universe being infinite imagine numbers imagine that you wrote out every single number what's the biggest number that you can write out right? there isn't a biggest number because you can always add one onto it and you can keep on going um, forever but then you could multiply you could write out all those numbers and then you could multiply them by two and then you still have all the numbers but their sum would be bigger so that, I don't know if that helps um, when thinking about infinity. It kind of helped me at the time. Um, but the other thing uh, when I think about this is if you imagine that you're an ant living on a piece of string that we've attached to the end, so it's living on a loop of string. Now that ant can go forwards and backwards along the string, and it can go um, left and right, and it can loop around the string, but it can't go up and down. It doesn't know about that, that other dimension. And so maybe we live in a universe where there's more dimensions, and so we just don't understand... Our universe well enough to understand um, what it's expanding into. I'm going to hope that someone else is going to jump in to to see if (laughs) we can get to the bottom of this. I can can
8: try and add a little bit. I think this is, out of all the questions we've had, well, the hardest question that we've (laughs) been able to answer, um, as posed by a 10 year old, of course. Um, And sometimes I just sort of try and think back to the person who kind of first came up with the idea that space could do weird things like expanding and stretching and stuff, which is Albert Einstein. And If we imagine ourselves sitting in this room, and you think this room has a certain size, it has a certain length and a certain width and a certain height, but Einstein was someone who thought about it and thought, maybe that's not true. And actually, depending how you're moving, like how fast you're going, this room could be a different size. It doesn't actually have... If you say, how big is this room that's not a question that just has one single answer it depends how fast you're going the distance could be smaller um, or could be larger and that's not exactly about space expanding but just thinking about space not even being necessarily the same for me as for someone who's running really fast towards that wall but just being relative as Einstein said (laughs) that kind of Helps me a little bit to think about it because then I stop thinking about space as being in anything and I just kind of think, well, space is just a distance from here to there and I've got an idea of what it is and someone else who's moving at a different speed has a totally different idea of what it is and because it's the space itself, it's not exactly in anything. <laughs> if that's a good answer,
10: <laughs> somebody help. Well, <laughs> there's a nice analogy. Uh, to actually carry on from your ants on a string, if you had three slices of bread and you s- hung them from a, like a, a knitting needle and put some ants on the right-hand side of each of them, they're sort of like we said uh, uh, in a two-dimensional universe, aren't they? And they wouldn't know about the other ants on the side that side of that piece of bread or that side of that piece of bread. Now we, looking at that, say, ah, those are just three two-dimensional universes. In another further dimension, because our brains are good enough to actually understand and think in three dimensions. In just the same way, our universe could be one of myriads of universes that coexist in this further dimension, and string theory has some ideas about that.
14: I think I'll uh, stop at that point <laughs> <laughs> I'll start I've
11: to got go another go another answer. Answer. I've, I've got another
14: analogy oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, We'll move on to the next question which is actually not a question so if Chris Walker would you like to explain a bit about um, what this is?
4: Yeah if you notice um, there's, it's a, a photograph or a series of photographs that I took of uh, the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades now, normally, um, I take a series of photos, and to increase the uh, uh, signal to noise, I stack them. But I, I did make a final photograph of this, uh, and it looked really good. But I went back to it, because on one of the photos, I could notice there was, a, like, a green blob. And, I mean, I've taken lots and lots of photos, uh, and usually I don't see things I don't understand. But this object... It can't, be, it can't be like something that's the same distance as the shuttle because it would be moving far faster. It can't be something that's the same distance as, say, uh, the moon, otherwise it would be moving far slower. So it's green, it looks gaseous. What on earth is it? <laughs> so just
16: to be clear, you're referring to this moving object here yes. no, and, no. Not moving object there, no. and not that moving object there and not that moving object there. And there's another one down here somewhere where it seems to be moving too. Um, so I, um, uh, I think there are actually a couple of different uh, things that are happening here. Oh, here's another one up here. <laughs> um, so uh, first of all, you have some things which are, seem to be moving relative to the stars, but are actually stationary relative to uh, the frame. I think those might be just uh, bad pixels, or hot pixels, uh, in your camera. These bluish things look like they're some sort of internal reflection. So Fiona pointed out, when we looked at this, that these things actually are in the same arrangement, and there are quite a few of them if you look more carefully, they're in the same arrangement as the Pleiades, but just reversed. So that's probably an internal reflection. Now, as for Mr. Fuzzy Green Thing, um, my thought on that is that it may actually be scattered light from uh, some building or some site nearby. So did you take this photo in space? <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, no, no. The site that I have is quite quite, uh, quite far away from any light pollution, So, and I wasn't aware of any any um, lasers shining in the sky or anything like that. But my guess was that the way it's moving, it's moving in polar orbit. Was it could possibly be uh, a Soviet um, uh, communication satellite? Because they don't use geostationary satellites; they use uh, three polar orbit in long polar orbit uh, satellites, so they get two in there, two above the pole at any one time. And could it be? I mean, I don't know. Could it be a, that they've released some? Um, Hydrazine or something like that. I don't know what color hydrazine is. Okay, to...
16: it, if you, so if you were in an absolutely dark site, that, uh, and you're absolutely certain there are no lights anywhere that you could see, you can see, like, your hand in front of your face.
4: Just about. It, it's, just
16: about. it's Yeah, it, it's likely that that may not be uh, scattered light from an Earth-based object. However, there's also the remote possibility, although potentially real, that it's scattered light from a, uh, another object in the sky. As we can see, the Pleiades produce their own uh, inverse pattern on this picture as well. And there may be other near, nearby bright stars, like there's Alpha Taurus, for example, which is a fairly bright red thing, which could be responsible for this weird green thing, or one of the planets. Um, but my best guess is that this is something to do with scattered light inside the optics uh, of the camera.
2: Do we know how long it took from the first frame to the last frame? The time
4: approximately. Uh, I did write it up. But I think it's 22 minutes. I think it was something like that. Yeah, I,
2: think. I, d- I don't think it could be a sap white.
4: No. no, I was, so I was no, more okay.
2: thinking if there's some kind of um, reflected light or scattered light, whether it would match. Depending on your telescope, because also depending on your the amount of your telescope, you're going to be seeing the ground differently in your telescope. If you're tracking the sky, mm-hmm. then the elevation of the ground or the distance, the angular distance of the ground from your telescope will be changing, and that could potentially cause something to move across the frame. But yeah. you, you'd be able to know that from the time it took.
4: Yeah, but I've never seen anything, you know, taken similar photos like that before. Could you show the next
10: slide, which is... I screen-grabbed one of the pictures from the video and uh, got rid of the light pollution, as I know my friend has on his full picture. I also just increased the brightness of the little green blob. Can you see it better there than you could before? Um, okay, well, it's green. I mean, I started in a very simple minded way as I am Um, the things that are fuzzy and glow green are comets because you get cyanogen and also molecular carbon that give off the green colour and some lovely pictures showing the green, I think uh, Comet Catalina showed some green quite recently Um, anyway you could then do some sums Uh, I worked out what's called the image scale of the picture which is how many pixels or how how many arc seconds corresponds to one pixel of the image, next slide actually I do not see that's a complete blow-up of the green blob and the first thing you can work out very simply is that each pixel is about seven sorry, ten arc seconds across the overall width of this is about five so it's about 50 arc seconds across can you see it's elongated now the stars are not many in this but they're point point objects they're brilliant which means I think you were auto guiding very well I mean they were superb images and so you can actually work out from this roughly how long the exposures were, which was a couple of minutes or so, which is good. Okay, now if you know the, the, the number of pixels across, you've got the angular size. Okay, um, what you can then do, well, suppose it was a comet. They have a, typically have a coma about fifty thousand kilometres across. From that, you can work out how far away it is. It, in principle, be about one point three astronomical units further away from the sun. Fine except that you can then work out how fast it's moving. And if it were there, it would be moving an awful lot faster than any comets move at that distance from the sun. So it cannot be a comet. So I just think it's an alien craft, which is high
11: <laughs> <laughs> as
10: a green fuzzy blob, so you don't know what
5: it is. Uh, and if any of the listeners have more photos of aliens, do send them to the broadcast, <laughs> <laughs> and that will fill the next ten years of episodes. And this is a bespoke service. I hope you appreciate the amount of work that's gone into this. Thank you
14: very much for that. Um, so the next question was asked by Paul Stevenson, who is uh, unfortunately not here. So I'm going to ask it on his behalf. And the question is, what is the cause of the highly inclined orbital axis of many of the hot Jupiters that have been found to date? Does this imply that we are not only in a Goldilocks zone, but a Goldilocks system? I think I'll throw that at you, Chris.
5: Sure. So, um, I heard a a talk at a conference uh, about a month ago that completely changed how I think about the solar system, and which helps answer this question. So... You have to think, we we used to think of our solar system as a nice, boring, stable, lovely place to to sit in, in which the planets move like clockwork. But if you go back four and a half, four four, or maybe five billion years, it's not like that. We know, for example, now, we think uh, now that there were 20 things the size of Mars knocking around the inner solar system. Uh, And their collisions and interactions led to. What we see today, it gave us the moon. That was a collision with the Earth. It led to the strangeness of Venus's rotation, the fact it's very slow, uh, and so on. But it's a chaotic system, more like a pinball machine with lots of pinballs than anything nice and orderly. Um, And so once these things start interacting, they affect each other. And one of the things you might expect to happen is... Uh, that some of the planets or some of the forming planets would be thrown up into highly inclined orbits. So then you have to ask, well, why for these hot Jupiters, these systems where we see big planets close to their star, why are they on inclined orbits out of the plane and and our planets are are here? And it's really a function of how much stuff there is. So the talk that I heard um, put solar systems on a range of, of sort of initial density. And so if you don't have much stuff, you form a few boring planets if you have loads of stuff you form so many pinballs that you're almost bound to get these highly inclined orbits and you also get these hot Jupiters which have migrated inwards and then we're right in the middle where we've had enough we had enough stuff in our proto-solar system to uh, form a nice array of planets eight or nine or ten or however many you want to count depending on your definition um (laughs) Uh, but not enough to produce hot Jupiters and these highly inclined orbits. So, uh, what's nice about that is there's a prediction there that as we keep finding these things, we should find more and more of them on on highly inclined orbits, and we'll be able to test that uh, very shortly.
14: Great. Does anyone else want to add to that? I don't. I, don't. <laughs> I, think I heard it from
5: the
10: best. It's uh,
5: be Talk for long enough that people forget what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> That's key in these sessions.
10: Does it make you think that? solar systems like ours are common or very rare?
5: Well, I, somebody asked that question, and we don't really know, although i talked about us being in the middle, I don't think we know yet how sensitive that parameter is. So it may be that there are loads uh, of solar systems sitting where we are. It may be that you have to get exactly the right density of stuff to get there. So I don't think we know yet. But it does suggest that we shouldn't be surprised that there's no hot Jupiter. Uh, here and that our gas planets are well-behaved and, and firmly placed in the outer solar system.
14: Okay. Uh, so the next question is from Tom. Tom Shiverton. Mm-hmm.
17: NASA plans to retire the space station in a decade or so in order to pay for a trip to Mars. Is this a good trade-off?
16: So to take a kind of extra grumpy approach (laughs) to this question. Uh, I actually uh, don't think that either the International Space Station or a manned mission to Mars are the best things to do in terms of space exploration at the moment, uh, in any case. And this is just because it costs a lot more money and it's just technically much more difficult to send stuff into space which uh, with human beings than it is to just send automated uh, rovers or automated telescopes or other uh, unmanned missions into space. And I think uh, one of the best examples of uh, just how much value you can get out of an unmanned mission is, are the uh, Spirit and Opportunity rovers on Mars, uh, NASA put out a press release last month which was basically reminding people that opportunity is still around. It's still going. After 12 years of being on the Martian surface, we have some people in the audience who were born after <laughs> opportunity landed and have not known a Mars without opportunity just making its way across the surface. Um, That's how much value you can get out of an unmanned mission. You can't stick a person on Mars and hope that nothing goes wrong on your mission, like a uh, unit conversion error, which happened with one of the NASA uh, missions to Mars. You can't, like, stick somebody on Mars and uh, expect them to be there for a couple of months and say, oh, can we, like, squeeze another 12 years of
2: science out of you? (laughs) Because they're you are going to run potatoes? out of food or air. Send them enough potatoes. I think that's what we <laughs> from the Martian.
16: Well, that's true. There, There, there is a Matt da- You can send Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> you, if, you, you will make it work for 12 years.
5: If, if we get to choose who to send, I think it's an excellent trade-off. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, there, there's no doubt that um, our first questioner is wearing a Principia uh, shirt uh, in honor of Tim Peake's uh, mission. And, and I think... You, know, you don't do manned space for science You do manned space because it's fun and inspiring um, And because uh, It makes people think And reminds them that the universe is out there And that we can explore it um, So Would a Mars mission do a better job of that Than the space station? Yeah, I think so I think before Tim Pete went up there we mostly forgotten that the space station existed in this country uh, In the US it's the same thing When things go wrong people pay attention briefly um, uh, so, so a Mars mission I think would be worth it whether you can get a Mars mission for the cost of the International Space Station I'm not sure, if somebody's offering you that trade and you believe them, grab it with both hands, the, the problem is getting the politicians to fund a Mars mission it's interesting
2: because we did talk about this subject at the last Jodcast Live so <laughs> it still obviously is an interesting thing to talk about sending a crewed mission to Mars and it's clearly
16: still an unresolved question as well. Yeah. After five years, we still don't have consensus on whether or not this is a good idea.
2: Well, the last time Chris mentioned the one person, one trip, one way or something. That's right, yeah,
5: that was yeah. the American.
2: Are you
14: volunteering?
2: <laughs>
5: <Wouldn't> <laughs> you? I would go. Well, mind
2: your show of hands, how many, would, how many
8: would go on a one-way trip to on we've got
5: two conditions. So it's a one-way trip to Mars, <laughs> but we promise you'll stay alive <laughs> uh, and you can keep the internet. Albeit in a die. <laughs> uh, so, okay. so, with those conditions, who would go? Yeah, somebody's got two hands up, so he's <laughs> first. <laughs>
12: so, that, that's the majority of people. I kept my hand down, I've to say. No, that's right.
5: Well, you, you can. Uh, did any of the Jogcast team want to stay with Jen? We... <laughs> oh, that's a loaded question No, no, I'm just making sure we've still got a job cast
10: We'll always have Milan, Jen <laughs> And I didn't put my hand up Because I might not even last 12 years so.
0: <laughs> But when, just uh, just think about What has come from Manned missions into space When we think of the technical advances Like Teflon, like memory foam Like all of the, all of the science And the engineering that we use in our everyday lives That has come from that goal of going to space would just be magnified by going to Mars, I would have thought, because you've got that tremendous engineering challenge of getting someone there, keeping them alive, and potentially getting them back. I think that there's an, an awful, very exciting engineering that could come from that.
2: Well, it's also the capability of us being a multi-planet species, mm. not just being on Earth, I think. Yeah.
16: Well, if we were to do more than just uh, space exploration, if we were to actually settle, or if we were to do things that were much more complicated than just a robot, then yeah, I would all be all for uh, sending a manned mission to Mars. If we're just going to go there and like, uh, poke some rocks, we can mm-hmm. send an unmanned mission to do that.
12: Well we've got to start somewhere right? You, yeah you the galactic the empire needs
16: to start somewhere
5: <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I think you, you, you behave differently as a as a person, I mean maybe AI will will uh, improve by the time we get to Mars but there are a nice hybrid idea, so the planetary society in the US has been promoting um, the idea that you want to explore Mars scientifically before we go and ruin it by putting people all over it uh, but you also want to take advantage of human presence so the way you do that is you put a you put a space station on phobos uh mars's moon uh, from there you can easily control rovers on the ground uh and you essentially have an excellent remote control playground for your little robot toys as you orbit above the surface of mars and i think that you know there are, there are clever hybrids that take advantage of both um what we need is to to pretend there's oil there or yeah. uh, you know get, I, it, I hear it's,
0: it's a good today. site for Donald Trump's next golf course I <laughs> think
5: um, <laughs> before we I get into Donald Trump yes yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's send Donald Trump to Mars
14: Sally is urgently looking
12: at
5: I'm not going to delve
14: into politics the next two questions in fact have both been about gravitational waves and the first person Stephen Roderick wasn't able to join us either and but I think I'll maybe ask for sort of a general introduction to gravitational waves, and hopefully you all know that they detected them. <laughs> um, but if somebody would like to sort of lead that and just tell us what it was and how they found them.
2: <laughs> wow. I'd like Christopher how the recent discovery, because he talked about them while spotting penguins in Antarctica. Sure. So. Sure.
5: So, so, so I Gravitational waves are a very simple idea, which is that space, uh, if you think of space as a substance, it can ripple. So you can have a wave that's travelling through space. And so then there are two questions you should ask. One is, what would cause such a thing? And the answer, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, is that anything with mass that moves uh, causes a ripple in space. So as as the Earth goes around the Sun, there will be a, a gravitational wave that spreads out into the universe. Uh, And so then the next question you should ask Is will these waves be big Should we think of the Earth as rather like A a ship on a stormy ocean Being tossed around And and actually that's not quite right Because space, although it can have these waves Travelling through it Is very, very, very stiff So even if you give it a huge bang You don't get much of a ripple And so the only gravitational waves That we should expect to be able to detect Are those from very big things Doing dramatic things and so a good example of that is when two supermassive black holes, the kind of black holes that we have at the centre of galaxies, collide. Uh, and that happened. Uh, it happened a long way away. Um, and it caused a gravitational wave that travelled towards the Earth and was detected by a very sensitive instrument called LIGO. Um, and LIGO, the LIGO team announced this first detection of a ripple in space um, just, the day, just the other day. It's the result of 40 years' worth of work. Um, I think the other thing I should do before we get to questions is, is give you an idea of how hard that was. Um, and to give you a, a, the best way I know of, of, of telling you this is that um, LIGO is capable of detecting the gravitational pull of a cloud passing over it. And in fact, that, the signal from that cloud is much stronger than the ripple that they're trying to detect from two black holes colliding. So that gives you an idea of how difficult this is. And the announcement that they've managed to do it is
10: hugely exciting. Wow. Absolutely. One perhaps should stick up for Jodrell Bank. Um, Although this was the first time that gravitational waves have been directly detected, prior to that, there have been two detections of gravitational waves being produced. In the first case, by a neutron star going around an ordinary star, and in the case of the Jodrell Bank observations, of two co rotating uh, neutron stars or pulsars. Um, Because we know that the emission of gravitational waves takes energy out of the system, Einstein's theory predicts that the two objects should gradually spiral in towards each other. And the theory at the moment says that the orbits of these two pulsars that we've detected ought to be reducing by about 7 millimetres per day. And that's exactly what we find. So there have been two indirect detections previously but this is a fantastic
5: yeah I, I think this is what people got wrong in, in a lot of the press coverage of this fabulous announcement which is people said this is proof that gravitational waves no. exist and actually we knew that because we'd seen yeah. their effects what this does is allow us to to look out into the universe in a new way and say ah something happened there and something still happened brilliant. over there
14: and another high five to pulsars yes
8: yeah. 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 and of course pulsars are still being used to try and detect gravitational waves um, in a more direct way now, as well yes. yeah um, so,
2: so gravitational waves, depending on the size of the object it, it changes the, the frequency of the gravitational wave, um, and so different sized objects are probed by different types of detectors so lIgo is is sort of binary black holes if you go into space, Lisa will soon be hopefully up and doing things which will be on a slightly bigger scales. is a spaceship, not a person. Sorry, yeah, Lisa is, a person. Lisa is a, a mission that's go going to Lisa. measure. It's basically like LIGO, but on a much bigger scale in the solar system um, as an interferometer. Um, if you go to even larger scales, there's a pulsar timing arrays. There's about three of them around the world. In, I think Australia, Europe, and America will have pulsar timing arrays, which are basically trying to use pulsars and the signals we detect from pulsars because they're very good clocks. Um, use those as arms of an interferometer well not quite an interferometer but use them for timing in different directions and see if we can see very very um, large scale gravitational waves, things that are affecting very very big scales much bigger than the, our solar system um, so that's another thing and also people might remember BICEP2 experiment in 2014 I think it was it also claimed to have detected gravitational waves, it turned out that wasn't true. Planck came up with some more data to show that there's actually dust in our Milky Way that was the cause of that. Um, But that was looking, and it's still a possibility, is looking for gravitational wave signatures, how they affect the cosmic microwave background. So these would be gravitational waves which are on the largest scale in the universe, basically using the whole universe as an experiment um, to look for how they make very subtle changes to the polarization in the cosmic microwave background that we detect, which could potentially tell us about the very early universe and is one of the points of uh, a prediction of inflation that you should be able to detect these signals so,
14: so I think we'll go to the question at this point um, <laughs> Sorry. so Mark Gray
0: I'd just like to also say thanks for letting me be here today I live local I'm a long time listener and it's you can imagine I'm utterly thrilled I'd like to say thanks to everybody who's uh, helped make it happen today cheers guys thanks you) <laughs> I think you were alluding to the start, start of where we're going. So now that we have observed gravitational waves, can we use them to observe the birth of the universe?
2: So, yeah, sorry for anticipating that. I, <laughs> I think I would say yes. Um, it's still very much at the edges of what we could potentially do, and we're not, we're not really there yet, as BICEP2 showed. We need to have a very good idea about the things that are between us and the distant universe, which is everything, basically. Um, and you need to have a very good idea about what that is. Um, if we are going to detect that signal, but I think the cosmic microwave background potentially pulsar timing arrays, if they go to big enough scales, would have a, a handle on on that sort of very early universe scale of, cos- of gravitational waves.
5: Yeah, the way the way to think about it, as Stuart's saying, is if you think about my analogy of being on a ship in a choppy ocean, what LIGO is detecting, what this new detection is, is sort of that each and every swell that you go up and down as you bounce across the waves. What you need to detect to understand the early universe is sort of the deep, long swells of of the ocean. and So you use a different set of tools for that. Um, So this doesn't help us get there, but it does increase the excitement um, and allows us to see more of sort of the intermediate universes. So one of the things we'll want to answer with LIGO is, how often do these black holes collide? And that tells you something about how galaxies form, which tells you something about what's happened in the 13.8 billion years since uh, the very early
10: universe. electromagnetic radiation can only see as far back as about 380,000 years after the origin because you come across the fog, which was the what gives rise, in fact, the cosmic microwave background. Gravitational waves are the only thing that would allow you to probe any any further back in the life of the universe. Just quickly, a uh, uh, sort of an analogy that the youngsters might like about how LIGO works. I regard that event as a sort of a gravitational wave tsunami. I mean, an enormous wave. Uh, if you had two ships about four kilometres apart with a laser measuring the separation between them on the sea. And if a tsunami wave came along, can you see the first little ship's going to bob around? That would give you a little signal. The wave then comes to this one, it would bob around the other way around. So you'd actually be able to measure the fact that a tsunami was coming. But of course, if a tsunami came at that angle... The two ships at right angles, you wouldn't actually see anything because they both do this but of course if you had another arm at right angles then you'd be bound to get it and that's a sort of a crude analogy as to how LIGO works
2: I was just going to add the CMB does let you see back before 380,000 yep. years but you're mm-hmm. inferring that whereas gravitational waves, are, would, if we could f- detect them in the, in the cosmic microwave background would be a bit more of a direct, yes. direct look back so it's probably worth mentioning that
15: you, you do learn things about because of the fact that we haven't detected gravitational waves in the cosmic microwave background as well. So because they aren't loud enough <laughs> for us to have already detected, we can also already say
2: things about the, the physics of inflation. Yep.
14: Okay. It's um, always
2: important to care about when results aren't what you expect.
14: Um, okay. And the next um, question. Um, I can't find it. There you are. Um, ben. Yes.
7: Is there really a Planet Nine?
5: People are looking at me. <laughs> well, we should probably say what
2: Planet Nine yeah. is because this is not a question about Pluto. <clears throat> um,
16: Which is no longer a planet.
2: Which is a dwarf planet, one of the it's, five currently known dwarf planets. It's
16: dynamically planets. different.
2: Yep. Um, so, we're down to eight planets again since 2006. I just want to add in that we have had far more than nine planets in the past, because we've redefined things quite a lot over 400 years. We, at one point, had 16 planets, so don't think that the most we ever had was nine. Um, but this new one is um, two astronomers in America, um, Mike Brown and, I've forgotten... Constantine Batygin. Thank you very much. Um, ...have inferred the presence of another planet from... The data they're looking at i'll let you
12: before we get onto on. that can i just bring up another job memory um <laughs> because mike brown uh most people will know of as pluto killer and there was because he was one of the people uh who discovered eris um another dwarf planet um that led ultimately to pluto's um regrading i won't say downgrading regrading um but one of the wonderful job pantos that we did was a variation on on, uh, Snow White. It was
0: Nikki White and... uh, Sorry, um, Neil White and the Seven Dwarf Planets.
12: Yes, and so as part of that, I think Megan was Pluto and I managed to get Mike Brown to send us a little bit of audio um, pretending to be, like, the sort of parent of... um, of, of, of the dwarf planets, and just so that we would make Megan say daddy for some reason I can't remember that it's an on- <laughs> ongoing joke um, ever since so thank you Mike Brown for sending in some rather strange audio for us
5: <laughs> to follow that
12: <laughs> uh, if one can
5: um, I think returning to the, the question yeah. so, so, so what Mike, Mike studies the outer solar system and he and it should be said lots of other people had noticed That six of the most distant things that we know out there In particular uh, one called Sedna um, but other things that that are in some some weird orbits Were all in the same part of the sky Um, And their orbits which are elliptical Took them out in the same direction So it's kind of weird that all six of them Headed in the same direction And so uh, he might walk down the hall to see Constantine Who's a theorist who runs computer models Of how things behave in the solar system we said, okay, try and explain this. And you start off by trying to say, okay, um, do these things interact with each other? Well, there aren't enough of them, for example, uh, for their gravity to have enough effect to do that. And you can come up with some other solutions. But one of the things you could try and do is put in another planet whose gravitational pull will start affecting uh, the orbits of these six weird outer solar system objects. And It turns out if you put in a planet that's about ten times the size of the Earth, ten times the mass of the Earth, and you put it on an elliptical orbit in the opposite part of the sky to the six weird ones, then you can explain why these things are out there. So this is a prediction that this planet, which we're calling Planet 9, or as a friend of mine had it, Pluto, uh, <laughs> uh, is out there in the outer solar system. And, and so, so that idea's been around, but what Mike and Constantine did just uh, a month or so ago was produce the first proper simulations that show this idea worked. Um, and so I was lucky enough to go and, go and talk to them for, for the BBC. I think it's still on iPlayer, uh, <laughs> uh, on, on another show. Um, but, um, but, um, and I went out as a bit of a sceptic, because this is a nice idea, and all right, it's a computer simulation, um, but we need to find these, this thing. Um, but it turns out there's another thing that the computer model predicts. It predicts there should be another set of objects moving at right angles to uh, the plane of the solar system. Um, So these are things that have had an encounter at some point with Planet Nine and they get kicked up out of the solar system. And the thing that I find very convincing is that these things exist. So there are known uh, objects on these weird perpendicular orbits. So we've now got two sets of weird orbits that can be explained for the low, low price of one large (laughs) planet in the outer solar system. And then it turns out that... Um, if this thing is ten times the size of the Earth and it's made of vaguely normal stuff like Uranus and Neptune are and it's on the outer bit of its orbit then we wouldn't have seen it yet it's faint enough that it's plausible that it would be missed but bright enough that we should be able to see it if we knew exactly where it was and so there are astronomers who have gone out looking for this I know that there's telescope time being used to try and find this thing so I'm convinced that this thing exists I became convinced over the course of a day talking to and Constantine, who really believe in it, um, and I think we'll know in the next five years, because somebody will either find it or will have built a survey telescope that's good enough to rule it out. But the idea that there's another big planet out there uh, is, I think, really exciting. We're going to have so much fun arguing over about what to call it. <laughs>
12: I love this uh, this finding, or this hopeful finding, because it reminds us that Even though we think that we know everything that's going on in our solar system, um, and, you know, a lot of the time, um, we're studying the stars and the galaxies, um, out there beyond, there is still so much that we don't know about sort of, sort of our backyard. And I love being able to go into schools, every school I've been into, the the children have known about this. And to be able to say, yes, you're learning about your your eight planets, but as, as Stuart was saying, you know, it's, it's been different in the past, it will be different in the future. When you grow up, if you, you become astronomers, we may have changed the rules again. Uh, you know, the least interesting thing about Pluto is the fact that it's a dwarf planet. Um, and we're still finding out so much about it. And if there is Planet Nine, and I don't know if there'd be any other planets out there, it's... it's It's absolutely wonderful that we're reminded of this.
5: Yeah, I've really enjoyed the surprise of people when I was talking to people about this. And as you say, people heard that there was this new planet. People were agog and incredulous at the idea that astronomers could have missed this thing. (laughs) And I found myself having conversations with which I said things like, well, astronomy's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Space is big. Planets are small. There's still potentially a huge amount that's out there that we don't know about. And I think we're... Actually... The job cast is very good at doing this, but in the media in general, we're very bad at pointing out what we don't know. And I think, you know, if you just read the headlines and you see this long trail of astronomy discoveries, I mean, half of them are water on Mars, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, you just see this long trail of discoveries. I think you forget that there's a lot of unexplored space out there.
2: Can I just ask a question of you, Chris, or anyone, really? If, if we think we've got an idea where it might be in the sky, is it worth... Proposing a mission to go and visit now (laughs) (laughs) I mean not it won't launch now But hopefully we might have found it By the time we need to launch I I
5: think if it was going to take 30 years to find it I think that might make some sense LSST which is a survey telescope That will come on stream in about 5 years time Will find this in the first year of operation Or rule it out So either we'll find it in the next few years Or LSST will pick it up So I think think it's worth waiting I think uh, what's interesting is the competition To try and find it Um, So it's about It's faint but it should be visible In an 8 meter telescope And it moves about 2 Arc seconds a night It's apparent motion should be So uh, about, what's that, 1 Almost a 2,000th of a degree But that's just about detectable
10: so it wasn't um, the thing in his film. No, no, I'm <laughs> just. Kidding. But no,
5: we can rule that out, luckily. Um, uh, but but the point is, it's just on the edge of being discovered so if it's real. So I think we should go looking for it first. Uh, getting a mission there is not easy. No. Um, it's a long way out. Um, so in two and a half thousand years' time, it will be much closer. Uh, but that's probably a little too long to wait.
14: Okay. And so, from our solar system to another solar system, is Ian Wilkinson here?
0: All of our units require knowledge of something intrinsic to Earth. For example, light years, astronomical units, and parsecs. Can you suggest a unit that would make
8: sense if you weren't born in this solar system?
16: So I like this question uh, a whole lot when I heard it, and uh, I instantly uh, had an idea for an answer. Um, It may actually be uh, useful to talk about, um, uh, first, the definition of the meter which was originally supposed to be like uh, some really, really small fraction of the circumference of the Earth, as defined by uh, uh, France in the 19th century, I think. And uh, they tried to make it this really precise number, I forget, like one ten millionth or something like that. I can't remember the exact number. And then they discovered, well, uh, like quite a few years later, well, it's like the Earth isn't quite that same size as the meter, so uh, as we define the meter as, so um, we'll have to find a different definition. And uh, so through mo- most of the 20th century, the definition of the meter uh, was actually uh, based on uh, so many wavelengths of emission from an isotope of Krypton. Uh, now, in uh, so this actually gets my answer. We can actually define a lot of standard units of measurement based on uh, the emission of electromagnetic radiation from atoms and we're fairly certain that the uh, uh, the physics of that mission will not change over time. Those lines might be redshifted but if we agree on the definition of well it's like we just have like the atoms at rest and they produce this wavelength then it's like uh, no matter which alien civilization we have we'll be able to measure the same. Uh, uh, wavelength of emission. One of the uh, favorite uh, wavelengths of radiation in this respect is uh, the 21-centimeter line from hydrogen, uh, which is a very common radio astronomy line, and it's uh, produced by the most common elements in the universe, and um, it's uh, any civilization which has Uh, some sort of level of electronic technology is going to be able uh, to pick up uh, this type of hydrogen line emission and is going to know about its existence. And, in fact, the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence uh, likes to look for alien civilizations at multiples of this 21-centimeter line of radiation. So uh, I think one of my favorites in this uh, respect is uh, looking for uh, alien signals at the 21-centimeter line multiplied by pi or divided by pi Uh, because um, if you have an alien civilization trying to transmit at 21 centimeters itself, that will get lost in all of the other hydrogen in the Milky Way. But if uh, they want to be found, they'll multiply that by another universal number and... Pi is another one of these uh, universal numbers where every advanced civilization should be able to come up with like the uh, ratio of the diameter to circumference and circle as the same number.
10: Yeah. The plaque that was drawn by Carl Sagan's wife that went out on the two Pioneer probes uh, used the wavelength of hydrogen, 21 centimeters as the length scale. And there was a picture of a gentleman and a lady uh, which didn't go down too well with the American Ladies League of Decency, but nevertheless that basically gave that little height like that above them, and in terms of the hydron that was their height.
5: The, the trouble is this is a terrible unit for astronomy. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, because my thoughts went down a similar, similar route as you were asking the question and, and small units are kind of easy but if we're going to talk to alien civilizations on equal terms. I'm going to wa- want to ask some questions about galaxies and cosmology. You can get on to it. Well,
16: well, you yeah. can multiply... Well, you can, but... You, you can happen. multiply this by a really, really large number. if okay. <laughs> You want to measure distances between stars, but at least you have yes a measurement which both you and some other
15: alien oh, no, civilizations... Oh, no, 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 I think,
5: that, I think that's great, but it would be nice to have a natural unit there's, that's large. It's probably, that cool. probably the Hubble radius. It's
15: probably... The what? The Hubble radius, so the distance to the the... the Last scattering service isn't that time uh, dependent
5: that, well, that, that, that is time
15: different. dependent whereas
16: like these atomic phenomena people have studied the physics and they think the atomic phenomena actually stay very constant over time mm. or, uh, in terms of the evolution of the universe
2: so this has only really given us a scale for length though would, ah, so time?
16: if you wanted to find a universal scale for time, now it again, it's like you'd sort of have to get your uh, alien civilization to agree to this. But you could say how long it takes um, light to travel one wavelength, uh, for one hydrogen wavelength. Yeah. The speed of light in the vacuum is a constant. That's uh, length divided by time. Uh, the length of this hydrogen line is a constant. So if you take the length and divide by the speed of light, you'll get a time unit out. Again, it's another very small time unit. Um, There are other things as well. Um, I
15: might might interject here, so speaking of time, um, (laughs) in in my role as Time Lord for this afternoon's uh, activities. Um, I think we probably do need to move on from this segment now. If that's thank okay. Thank you. But you Sally said it better than too. I was going <laughs> to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: good to know. Uh, you are alive and well in the job <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um,
14: I'd like to thank you all for your questions, and I'm sorry to anybody that didn't get to ask their question. And thank you to our panel for answering those questions.
8: Okay. Thanks for that, Sally. And now, fighting to retain his title as our most interviewed guest, but hopefully not physically fighting, <laughs> for the seventh time, Chris Lintott is going to be interviewed about hunting for pulsars and counting penguins by Indy.
15: Hi everyone, so I'm, I'm Indy, uh, I was uh, the uh, Jodcast uh, producer before Ben and Charlie and uh, handed it over to them and they decided to do Jodcast live, which I would never have been able to do in a million years, so uh, thanks, thanks guys. Um, so yes, Chris, you haven't said enough in this Jodcast Live, so we've decided Sorry. to have an interview with you now um, But actually, looking back through the Jodcast archives uh, You're the most appropriate guest I think we could have, have gone Because we've uh, we followed you and you've followed us all the way through, uh, through our history So um, I'm going to start off with uh, all the research I did last night about all your appearances um, So your first interview was all the way back in April 2007 um, was that a National Astronomy meeting? Not either? even, no, no. That was just a plain old vanilla uh, Jodcast interview with Stuart.
2: I think it was recorded at the National Astronomy meeting. Yeah, It sure. might not have been on the NAMM ju- but how Stuart there. and I met.
15: Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> We've well, friends so, uh, this, this is information I not prove, you This bet. is vital for the Jodcast
5: archives. Uh, we, need,
15: we need to put this history down. Um, and you were introduced as Chris Lintot of Sky at Night fame. and uh, And... For people who followed Chris's interviews and, and things he talks about on, 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 on TV, uh,
5: surprisingly there was no mention of Galaxy Zoo well, at it, all. Well, not that, so it didn't exist. Exactly. So, so <laughs> but, you know, uh, but, but yeah, this yeah. was before we'd come up with the wonderful idea of getting other people to do our work for us. Uh, and and invite. I mean inviting people to help us explore <laughs> the universe via okay. uh, classifying galaxies. So April... Yeah, we will have had the idea. In fact, we would have been trying to build the first Galaxy Zoo website. Uh, but at that point, we thought this was a crazy idea. The idea that anyone would volunteer their time to, to sort through astronomical data was was nonsense. And so I thought this was a side project, not the thing I was going to spend the next most of 10 years doing. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant because we then sort of see the
15: evolution uh, of, of, of your side project uh, uh, over the years. Uh, so there's a second interview in or quite shortly afterwards in August 2007 where there you, you start to mention it. Uh, this this one was done on the phone for some reason. Stuart,
2: any back info? Well, we have no budget, so we
15: can't go anywhere. <laughs> so it sounds a bit like a radio <laughs> interview. It's quite funny. Um, and and I have got this fantastic quote that you... Uh, so Stuart, Stuart starts and says, Oh, we, we talked about uh, Galaxy Zoo a little bit at Nam, uh, NAMM. Um, but that was just an idea. And then you say, Yes, it was a stray beam of light in a telescope at the time.
5: Blimey. <laughs> <laughs> it was obviously more poetic uh,
15: back then. Um and so that was the first uh, mention of Galaxy Zoo on the Jodcast. Um, your the next appearance wasn't even as an interviewer; you were just a co-presenter at the NAM in Belfast in 2008. Um, I think that was lack of budget again. They didn't have <laughs> enough Jodcast people, but so I removed you the in to, yeah. to interview other people. Uh, the next one was uh, slightly after that in May 2008, because there were some very interesting things that started to come out of Galaxy Zoo, uh, and namely uh, Hanni's Voorwerp. Yeah, this
5: enormous gas cloud, which we we now think had been excited by uh, a jet of material associated with a black hole in a nearby galaxy, but yep. um, which at the time we probably thought of as a big green blob that was mysterious. Pretty much, you well, had you had it kind of kind of on the nose. It was all
15: quite um, hypothetical at the time, but I think looking at uh, what was what was then deemed so, so, I thought the name was really cool. I hadn't actually heard of this, but it's a uh, um, uh, quasar ionisation echo, which sounds really cool. Uh, yes, it sounds it like something just... they would
5: have run away from in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> um,
15: and then and then we've just invited you back periodically to, to update update us on uh, on Galaxy Zoo and and then what became the Zooniverse. So clearly you're at Jodcast, Jodcast Live, as has been mentioned uh, earlier in the program. Um, and then, and then we we have uh, the first mention of the Zooniverse, uh, which was at NAMM 2012 when uh, we interviewed you with, along with Rob Simpson, who's behind the Planet Hunters uh, uh, initiative. Um, and so that was the first branching out of the Zooniverse into something else. We've done it. we done a few other things
5: yeah. along the way, but Planet Hunters, I think, was was important to us. So this is you can still go and look for planets um, in data from a space telescope called Kepler. And I think Planet Hunters was important to us. For for two reasons. The first one was that we still had the the idea that with Galaxy Zoo, when we're showing people pictures of galaxies, that people were helping us in their tens of thousands because they liked looking at pictures of galaxies. And Planet Hunters uh, aimed to build on that success by having people look at graphs for fun. Uh, Because you can't see these extrasolar planets. All you could do is look at a star and wait for the planet to get in the way of it, and you get a blink. And so Planet Hunters was visual inspection of graphs, Uh, and it's still, I think, uh, it's certainly in the top three, it's it's probably our most successful project. Um, And we suddenly clicked that we really had hard evidence that our army of volunteers out there on the web weren't doing this because the pictures were pretty. They were doing it because the ideas were pretty. And the idea that you could sit in front of a web browser and try and discover something about the universe was hugely inspiring. And suddenly for me, I realized that... um, we were doing the wrong thing, I think, often in talking about astronomy. We're busy telling you what we know, and actually what's exciting is what we don't know. That's what I said a, a, a minute ago. Uh, and planet hunters was the thing that confirmed that. So that's the first reason it was important. The second one is that I'm one of the few, I think, professional astronomers who grew up as an amateur astronomer. I guess is there were a few others on the Jogcast team, but it might be a selection effect. Um, but, but I grew up as an amateur astronomer, and the 12-year-old me would have been so impressed that we tried to find planets um, and so, so I felt that was a promise repaid To my past self To do something as cool as trying to find a planet
15: Yeah that's brilliant um, um, So continuing with the, the Jodcast history uh, Then we kind of lost interest in you for a while uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, And then your last, your, your last interview Which was your sixth uh, Was about a year ago um, And it was just a We were just trying to find out what you'd done In the, pre- in the previous three So it was just a long uh, sort of Zooniverse uh, oriented uh, interview and I'll get back to that in a second but one of the one of the really cool things that you've been doing with the Zooniverse uh, since 2012 and, and and the Planet Hunters was you've been partnering with Stargazing Live uh, every year and you had a different project and and you basically use the exposure to tell people. Come to our website and and classify all these things. Yeah, I I,
5: I sometimes tell people that we make Brian Cox useful for astronomers. But I've been told to stop saying
10: that. (laughs) But but no, but
5: but it's exactly, this is exactly the point. You know, the Stargazing Live audience who, who who are wonderful are there because. Um, they're mildly curious about this place and about Brian and about Dara and about whatever's happened, whether it's comets or Pluto or Tim Peake or, or whatever. And so to say to that large an audience, you can help us, um, is incredible. And then to, to nearly kill ourselves because we always try and give the results during Stargazing Live. So so I think my favourite was was one from a few years ago, um, a project called Space Warps, which looks for distant galaxies, like whose Galaxies whose light has been bent by passing through space and, and actually close to a nearby galaxy. So you get this warped and distorted image. Um, and so we were here. We put our, our site up. We said on the first night of Stargazing Live, go, help us find a distant galaxy. People rushed off. We got a million classifications in 20 minutes. <laughs> um, and by, by, by the time the program had gone off the air the first night, we had a good candidate gravitational lens. And so we spent the next day trying to work out what we could say about this. And so with any astronomical discovery, as soon as you see something new, a bit like the green blob we had earlier, the first question is, how far away is it? And we were sitting um, in what becomes the green room sort of, for, for, for Stargazing Light, but is actually, I think, one of the postdoc offices. So I don't know who we turf out uh, every year. Um, but we were sitting there, and, and I said to, to the room, I said, what we really need is a world-class radio telescope. (laughs) And the entire room sort of very slowly looked out the window. (laughs) Um, And we thought this was fine. So I went and talked to Tim O'Brien. I said, I know you're busy, you know, live TV show and all that. Can we use the level? Uh, And it's not scheduled during Stargazing Live because we wouldn't inflict the BBC's radio interference on a normal astronomy project. And so we use the level during the show to follow up on this discovery Which ruined the shot It was pointing away from the window um, And then some people here at Jodrell Worked all night to build a software program That could filter out the effects Of having a live television show From your radio telescope <laughs> um, And worked, we worked Throughout the next day And we got in my hands a print Of a radio picture of this distant galaxy 90 seconds Before I showed it I still oh, on, on, Yeah absolutely <laughs> And I kept getting messages from the Space the space Warps team, particularly um, Phil Marshall, um, who's in Stanford. It's his birthday today, incidentally. I noticed he has the same birthday celebration as the as, as the Job Cast. But but kept emailing me and saying, well, can we see this result? I said, no, we'll get it to you. And eventually, afterwards, he said, it was really clever that you, you showed it to the audience at the same time as us, because we're all the same team. I said, Phil, I just didn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have time to email you. But that... that That collaboration of the BBC to get the audience, um, the the wonderful Zooniverse team who don't sleep for the week of Stargazing Live, um, because one way to test your website is to have Brian Cox, 0.4 million people at it, (laughs) Um, and then the astronomers and the science team, particularly here, to get the result out. It was just wonderful. Um, And and the thing turns out to be it's a star-forming galaxy um, observed about 9 billion years ago, Uh, and it's a really interesting system that's still being followed up.
15: That's fantastic. I love it because it's it's sort of science accelerated. It's like something you just add loads of people and it just Yeah, which is massive. what the Zooniverse
5: just, does as yeah. well, right? I mean yep. we, we often say that a good Zooniverse project is one where you find yourself sitting in a coffee room and saying, you know, I'd like to do this project, but somebody would have to do this. Yeah, you know, some PhD student would have to look through a million images. Well we could do that in an afternoon. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's that ex- acceleration is exactly the right word to describe what's happening.
15: So let's so let's talk a bit more about uh, the Zooniverse project in its current state. Um, so first of all, I've got a really uh, crucial question: Why do so many things begin with P in the Zooniverse? We've got plankton, penguins, pulsars, uh, planets.
5: Yeah, I'm um, mostly a love of alliteration. Really, <laughs> uh, I adore alliteration. Um, and no, it wasn't funny. Thank you. Not even Dave laughed at that. Sorry, um, sorry. Um, but no, no. I mean, it, it, I, don't, I don't have a sensible answer, but it does illustrate how many different things we've ended up doing. Um, we realised that if we built a system for people to look at galaxies and to look for planets, that it's useful for other researchers as well. In fact, these days, if you are a researcher, you can build your own project in the Zooniverse with a few clicks, because it's not just astronomers that have this problem of having too much data or too many images. Uh, Amongst the most fun have been the ecology ones. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that whereas, just as in the old days, an astronomy PhD student studying galaxies might go and take... You know, ten photographic plates and bring them back and study them We now have access to a million images Whereas ecologists used to go into the field And keep notes on the behaviour of animals They now can put cameras out right. um, And come back with millions of images Of lions or penguins or, or whatever it is um, Often not in the same project Those two examples <laughs> um, And if anyone see, sees on our project um, But uh, And so that acceleration of data Has happened there too And just like in astronomy our ability to collect data Has got ahead of our ability to analyse it And the solution sure. is to get help Yeah,
15: no, it's brilliant So um, um, I was going to say Yes, so I, actually um, I have you on record as saying that Your favourite, so the A, picking your favourite Zooniverse project is like A, picking is your favourite child it No, is. but you gave us an answer last time And
5: you said it was the Plankton project Yes Is you that still Um <laughs> <don't>, I, <laughs> I, I think, I, I hope what I said was that The plankton one was the one that I did t- to relax Because I found them strangely really fascinating that. I think you mentioned something about yeah. one of the plankton Looking like the alien, the al- from, aliens. The alien from Alien you, yeah. you hadn't found it a year No, I, found, still I still haven't, haven't found, found it, it. Mm-hmm. They're very rare as it turns out No, I've been distracted by penguins oh. um, Okay, that's, that's a great segue
15: Thanks for <laughs> <that>. <laughs> 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 um, Because you've actually just gone to see penguins In, in Antarctica, haven't you, recently So tell us about uh, that trip And what you actually did And, and why you weren't doing astronomy You were looking at penguins instead
5: <laughs> Sorry I, it's in, After seven interviews it becomes What did you do on your holidays <laughs> I, I assume this means I finally answered All the astronomy questions So that's good But no I, I went on holiday to Antarctica uh, But I went as, as an unpaid research assistant um, For the Penguin Watch team okay. um, Who maintain um, A network of cameras down there And every year they have to go and change the batteries on the camera and get the data card out to bring back their images of penguins. So I had great fun, uh, mostly slipping and sliding in the wake of the biologists as they ran up hills to get to the cameras. But um, Stuart, uh, or no, Ben, somebody asked me for a picture of myself in Antarctica, which the viewers can now see on the background, Um, and I picked a picture with no penguins in it, (laughs) um, partly because this makes for an easy classification. The correct answer here is zero uh, penguins. But also, um, the thing that I'm clutching, which is a, a stone wall, um, it has some physics significance. So this is a place called Port Chacot. Uh, no one's ever heard of Chacot. He was a French explorer who who was the first to deliberately spend a winter in Antarctica. There'd been a crew before him who'd accidentally spent a winter in Antarctica. Um, but But... He was there with his crew. He had a a certain sense of style, as you'd expect from a French explorer. He took his butler with him. um, (laughs) And there's a photo of him in about where I am in this picture um, having a champagne breakfast uh, in front of his ship. But the thing that that I'm touching is is called the magnetic hut. And one of the things uh, that the early Antarctic explorers were trying to do uh, was to map the Earth's magnetic field in the south. Um, Because people probably know that the the magnetic poles of the Earth are not situated on the rotational poles. So if you go to the geographical north or south poles, uh, your compass will still point in a direction. They point to the the magnetic north and south, which are offset. And the south one is all the way over uh, towards New Zealand. Um, And if you think about it, this is why New Zealand gets good aurora, uh, even though they're much closer to the equator than we are in, in the UK. Um, and so they were looking on the... This is in the wrong side of the continent. Um, and they took all the equipment there. They built a, a stone hut. They put up, set up the thing, and they failed to find the South Magnetic Pole. is uh, on, on the other side. <laughs> uh, but Shoko was a scientific expedition. And, and I think, actually, one of the, the things I loved about my holiday was following in the footsteps of these people who were trying to do science... In some really quite extreme conditions, they took a botanist as well because they didn't know they were going to a place where there were no plants. (laughs) (laughs) And so he sounds like
15: science to me. Yeah, he ended
5: ended up writing a novel uh, (laughs) rather than studying plants because he couldn't. So I thought that would inspire the PhD students. Yeah. Uh, on the team you know if your science isn't going wow. well then the novels are, are a way forward well i was, was going to say i
15: mean I, i'm here because it's a uh, basically a break from writing my own phd thesis which is a month away from deadline so i might just run away to antarctica
5: so. yep i recommend <laughs> yeah. it his uh, um, charcot's second ship his first was the francois uh but the second one was called the Pas, which is the why not oh gosh, yes. <laughs> which i think shows yeah uh, the measure of the man
15: pretty much that's really good um so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get told off by uh, by Sally if I don't mention uh, the pulsar hunters project um, mm. because so that happened uh, here about uh, a month ago now and um, as you say so it was sort of a few sleepless nights for all the scientists involved um, and it was your first real brush with pulsars I think despite yes being in tomorrow, yeah.
5: Yes, not all astronomers do pulsars. <laughs> I, I know that here at Jodrell, that's a controversial statement. I suppose, I guess here, astronomers are divided into those who study pulsars and those who should study pulsars. Uh, but I, I, but I, I, I've been the latter. But no, this was, this, again, it's this thing of, well, we're not looking at images, but we're looking at data, which, which shows an idea. And we wanted to do something that was very tied to Jodrell. You know, I think the Stargazing Live program gets a lot of, uh, the love it does from the audience because it's here. It's about being in this iconic place, I'm sitting in a, a lovely room, but it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really talking about the dish outside. Um, uh, and so we wanted to do that, and we had data. So, so the, again, we wanted to do this idea of, of data and then follow up, and to work with some of the astronomers here. So um, we had a great response, and people sorted through the data, and we found some things to talk about. And we're in that sort of middle stage where we're still working through what's in. Uh, that data and what people have helped us find i think what's interesting about pulsar hunting from us from a zooniverse point of view is that the task is completely overwhelming even if you've got a million people and so what you need to do is you need to use a, a combination of people and computers right um, and typically at the minute we sort of you what we did for stargazing life was use the computers and then use the people um, but i think actually where we'll get to is a much more dynamic uh, thing so data will come off a telescope and will automatically decide what's worth showing to people and what's worth showing to computers. And then the computers will learn from the people and and we'll get this nice virtuous cycle going. And Pulsar Hunters, really, although it found some pulsars, and that's very exciting, is also um, providing us with data on how to do that well. And that's crucial for things like LSST. Sure. And, and the future generations of surveys that we've got coming Okay,
15: yeah, so that, that brings us So we're almost done now, So I'm just going to ask you this sort of final question um, By which you mean, can I make my answer shorter than all of the others? Also, <laughs> yes um, So, yeah, um, well, it's two questions One is, can you? do you have any idea what will be um, the Zooniverse project on Stargazing Live next year? And the other one is, um, wh- where does the Zooniverse go next? So you've
5: kind of answered that already, but maybe um, a few uh, Well, the answer to the first one is no um, so we're in the awkward stage in which the BBC are talking about what might or might not happen, and I'm trying to avoid them so that we don't <laughs> have to decide until we've actually had a chance to recover. Um, and then, yeah, I think where the universe is going is to be cleverer. So to, to, to both involving computers, but even amongst people, to be able to say to you each individually, I need your help to look at this thing right now. And maybe that's an alert you get two or three times a day and your phone pops up a galaxy or a picture of a set of penguins or whatever. But just being able to get to the point, instead of saying collectively, can we all sort through these images? Just those small moments of, actually, I need you over there right now to look at this image because I know that you're the best person online in the world to help me with this specific thing right now. Uh, That turns out to be an interesting problem. Um, Somebody said earlier that uh, people are much more complicated than pulsars. uh, And I described... Where I've done, it, where I've gone in the last um, eight years or so, is discovering that galaxies are simple, <laughs> and it's understanding the people in the zoo universe that's the hard bit.
15: Great. Uh, yep. Yeah, I think that's the time. So thanks a lot for the interview, Chris, and uh, see you back for your eighth.
5: Thank you.
7: <laughs> thanks for that, Indy. And now finally, onto the feedback. Fiona, I believe you got
9: some posts. Uh, yeah, we got some posts. Um, we got some post, And as you all know, I get really excited. We all get really excited when we get some posts. Um, so I'm going to take you through that now. So the first bit of post we have here is a, a, a postcard. There's actually a photograph uh, that you can all see on the screen there. Um, and then, uh, it says, thanks for a wonderful podcast. Loved the December extra. Checked my bookshelf for a brief introduction to nothing, but strangely couldn't find it. Best regards, Clive Stewart. Um, and Clive's books include Origin of Everyday Things, and the con- he's he's got a lot more science books than I do. I just want to point that out. Uh, so well done, Clive. Exploring randomness was
13: another one on there.
9: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I <laughs> quite like that one. I quite like that one. And hunting down the universe. That's that's also good. Um, the next one then we have is a, a very creative endeavor. So on the on the face of it, oh no, sorry, sorry, I had the order wrong. The next one we have uh, is um, a, a kind of a Star Wars homage that says, "A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away." dot, dot, dot. Uh, and then when you open it up, it says, you were born. <laughs> uh, and then the writing says, dear Jodcast, wishing you a very happy 10th birthday from Martin. Great show. I look forward to every episode. Jod on. Thank you, Martin. That's lovely. Um, birthday cards are always really exciting. I love getting birthday cards <laughs> <it>. <laughs> um, And then the next card after that uh, yes, this, this is the very creative card, because I think the person who sent it to us actually made it himself, which is really impressive. So it's got a picture of what looks like a Christmas tree, but actually on closer inspection it's the sun, uh, and then there are some planets underneath it which sort of look like ornaments. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, and then on the inside it says, to all Jodcasters, reasons, greetings, and happy new year from Philip." Uh, I've been a regular listener for years. Thank you so much for all your effort and enthusiasm. Uh, And then on the back, there's a little note that says, Isaac Newton, who formulated the law of universal gravitation, was born on the 25th of December, 1642. Happy gravness. (laughs) Very clever, (laughs) Philip. Very good. (laughs) Uh, And then finally, and uh, there's not a picture for this one, but I just want to uh, bring it up because it was handed to me this afternoon when I was sitting here. Uh, We have one last birthday card, which came with a badge, (laughs) which um, I was very excited about. Uh, Dear Jodcast, have a great, and it actually says GRR8, like like the Frosties, Um, (laughs) have a great 10th birthday. I hope you appreciate the many stars on this card. Oh, there's lots of stars, and also a picture of a very happy dog. Uh, Best wishes, Chris. Christina oh dear Christoph well is Christoph here yes yep
12: thank you Christoph it's lovely I'm really glad to see that nothing has changed in the job cast (laughs) (laughs) stressing out over reading out people's
9: names yeah well uh, so that's the
1: post thank you very much everyone for sending us posts Uh,
7: thanks for that Fiona and I believe we have some feedback from Facebook Megan
1: yeah, so we have a post from Penny Jackson, who says, I didn't quite start listening to the Jogcast ten years ago, but I started soon enough after the start that catching up on the entire archive at the time wasn't too hard. Um, good on you. Um, and I haven't missed an episode since. Can any other listeners beat that? Sadly, my memory isn't nearly good enough to remember any highlights from the early days. Um, well, I think we've discussed plenty of them today, so there's, there's one or two in, in this episode. So thanks for that, Penny. Um, we also had a post from Philip King he said, very belated birthday greetings to the Jodcast and many thanks to all the current and past Jogcast crew for the years of great programmes. I've been a listener since about 2010 or 2011, and it's become something I very much look forward to each month. Um, as soon as I hear the jaunty theme tune, I know that for the next hour or more I will be thoroughly absorbed. Well, I hope this one has lived up to the, those standards. So thanks for that, Philip. And the final one we have is from Andrew Horner, who says, happy 10th birthday to the Jogcast." I've been listening for the last four or five years. And even in the context of a consistently entertaining and informative podcast, the January extra ed- edition was a gem. Um, the interview with Professor John Seradakis on the anti antikythera mechanism was absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I hope Megan does manage to record an interview with Dr. Brian May at astervest Sadly, I didn't. I did try. Um, he was very friendly and he was, he was up for it, but unfortunately he just had so many people around him, it, it didn't quite happen, I'm afraid. So apologies for that. But thank you for the feedback, Andrew Horner.
3: And uh, actually, we've had some feedback from the powers that be as well. Well, first, we had some birthday wishes, which we wanted to put up here. These have been assembled from Twitter and Facebook and everywhere I could possibly find. <laughs> and if you look outside after this, I don't think the level will look like that. But you might have sobered up now. As um, with
7: my ex-jobcaster
3: Jersey Peters. Yes, yeah, I think that was the most retweeted birthday wish that we
7: had. It certainly <laughs> was, yeah. I just like the size of the drink. <laughs> <laughs> that,
5: that's left over from Stargazing Live. Uh, I think we needed one after that. Um,
3: but we've had some good feedback, even from the powers that be. Uh, so he's been mentioned a few times. Uh, he couldn't be here today. Uh, but we've got a video from Tim O'Brien, which I think is going to come up next.
11: <laughs> <laughs>
3: beard's still
8: frightening
18: <laughs> hello I'm sorry I can't be there for Jobcast Cast Live uh, I've been I was involved with the Jobcast at the beginning um, I, I did the Ask an Astronomer uh, part of it for probably six years I guess um, and then off and on in the, in the last few years I've probably been a bit busy to get involved I really should get b- more involved because I've, I really used to enjoy doing that um, I had I to look back and see what the very first question I a- answered on asking an Astronomer was. It was, uh, what's that bright thing in the sky? It was asked to me by uh, uh, by Nick Rattenbury uh, when he was still um, over here. Uh, and of course, you know, that I mean, the answer was always going to be Venus. This was always the things that people would ring up Jodrell when there was this lovely clear skies, you know, on those odd occasions when we ever get them, Uh, and they'd see this bright thing in the sky, and it would generally be the planet Venus rather than a UFO or or something. Obviously, we were not allowed to broadcast on the Jodcast when it was a UFO. Um, As I say, I'm sorry not to be there, and and I would like to say that um, uh, I really would like to say thank you to all the people there who've been involved in producing the Jodcast over the years. It's been a real um, stalwart, a real sort of uh, highlight of the of the Jodrell Bank um, outreach program, public engagement program, over 10 years, and one of the things about it that I think is really great is how it's uh, moved on. It's been led by students, led by research students throughout, which is a great thing. Um, and of course, you know, a research student's career typically lasts three years, and so to last 10 years means it's had to go through several cycles of different um, people producing the program, different groups of students, so that. That way of bringing on the next, uh, the next uh, uh, group of students into in training them up and getting them involved in the, running the jobcast has been a, uh, a great thing to see. I think it's, uh, people involved should be very proud of themselves of having done that. And in fact, that that was uh, it was great to see just the other week that the jobcast was recognised by our faculty here in Manchester. Um, the university's Faculty of Engineering and Physical Sciences has an awards program for for social responsibility, so so work that's done outside of the pure academic area. And the JODcast won um, the award there for outstanding student-led public engagement. Um, so it's great to see that uh, see that work being recognised uh, within the university as well. So. Uh, Thanks very much for everybody coming. Thanks very much to all the Jobcast team for everything you've done, and I hope uh, I hope uh, I might still be around in ten years' time. I might even make it to the next Jobcast live. Um, so I hope you have a good day. Cheerio. So, On yeah, the, it's funny.
3: Um, yeah. I wonder how long his beard will be in 10 years. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, has, it has grown along with the junk cast, I think. But um, yeah, we're now not just a podcast, we're an
7: award winning podcast. We <laughs> have the award. We have the award <laughs> with us. And it's, it's fully biodegradable, Fiona. I
11: just don't understand. <laughs>
9: I don't understand why the award is biodegradable You <laughs> want the award to last forever What's
7: the point of it? Well, David's holding it around, now it's decaying in his hands <laughs> Put it down, David I think it's
3: encouragement to make us keep performing well So we can go back and win it when this one expires Well, well,
5: well, well on that note, I was doing some calculations earlier And um, obviously for The Sky at Night Is an, uh, the other long-lived astronomy show um, But you're gaining on us In terms of number of episodes Because oh, really? you're twice a month and so I worked it out, and so in, in October 2057, um, that edition of the Jodcast will be the point where you overtake. So what so, so I think that's, that should be a Jodcast live. There may be others before that. <laughs> <laughs> but if anyone in the audience is still around, let's meet here, <laughs> and we'll see who turns up.
3: We can speed it up if we just cut this one, which is going to be a good few hours, into just five episodes.
2: You can have four episodes a month. <laughs> i well, I, think
9: I might need to do a part time PhD in that. On <laughs> <laughs> the, the subject of PhDs, I'd like to point out that a typical student's career is four years. Four years, not three. Can, can we should also
5: say that he meant to say their PhD lasts three or four years. That's not, not related, the career.
0: <laughs> I thought he was stumbling over the word victim for the next generation of uh, volunteers. <laughs>
15: Yeah, there is a bit of guilt when I hand it over to Ben and Charlie going, you have
3: no idea what you're (laughs) going But we've got each
15: other.
9: He tried to get get me to do it for a long time. I was like,
7: (laughs) You Made the right choice. (laughs) Right, well, we better get out of here because it's 1658 and we're being chucked out at... Five. and that not End only means minutes. we have to be out but all this equipment has to be dismantled um, in the next two minutes uh, because Sophia over there at the back who's been looking after us wants to go home um, so I think we better start closing the show, shall we? and if you want to get in touch you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast.
8: On Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. On Instagram at... Has Fiona made the Instagram account yet?
9: (laughs) So, like, I tried to do it, but then I couldn't figure out, because I already have an Instagram account myself, and I couldn't figure out how to separate that other one from my one, and I didn't want to be showing you, like, pictures of my lunch and pictures of my cat and pictures of porridge. Okay. Um, Let
8: me me try this
7: one
9: again. It's coming.
7: On Instagram... (laughs) I'll flip her up flickr.com slash group slash jobcast and don't forget to send us posts the address is on the website
3: thanks very much to David Alt, Jen Gupta Chris Lintott Stuart Lowe and Mark Perver for the interviews
7: the interviewers were Megan Argo Fiona Healy and Indy Leclerc the nights nice guys were read and compiled by Ian Morrison and Haratina Mogashanu
5: the surprisingly calm stage manager was Ian Harrison <laughs> <laughs> the astronomers were Sally Cooper Jen Gupta George
15: Bendo Chris Lintott Mark Perver Ian Morrison David Alt. Ian Harrison and Stuart Lowe.
1: Music was provided by Adam Avison, Megan Argo and Rhianne Sheehan.
2: The visuals were compiled by George Bendo.
1: The camera operators were Tom Scrag and Adam Barr.
2: At the front of
3: house were Adam Barr and James Bamber. Mike Peel and also Yoda the Oak were photographers.
8: (laughs) Equipment was provided by Megan Argo, Adam Avison, Andrew Markwick, Thomas Scrag, George Bendo and James Jeffrey.
5: I think that's you, Chris. Is it not? Be- it says, says Ben, ben. on the top. Yeah. Is
1: it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we keep that bit in.
7: Birthday buns were provided by Sally's stepmum, Glenys dr- Wright.
5: The drivers were Ian Harrison, James Jeffrey, Jane Gupta, and Mike Peel. Thanks to Naomi
15: Smith, Teresa Anderson, and everyone at the Joddle Bank Discovery Centre.
9: The editors were whoever is stupid enough to do it uh, or to sign up for it. <clears> hmm. <throat> the producers were Benjamin
12: Shaw and Charlie Walker
7: and until Until next time can we do that
12: again? that was rubbish we need to prep prep them as well? you
15: know what to say until Until next time John. John hey
1: okay okay. A <laughs> Don't few, forget the silence. A few
14: moments of silence.
8: Bit of silence. Oh, yeah, that's good silence.
12: OK. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> you guys, you really should do an outtake show at some point. <laughs> that would be fantastic.
12: <laughs> We're now recording Zen Time. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Zen Time is now starting. Okay, George Inspired in time is now over. Who? Let's start. You're editing this. <laughs> the Jodcast with the biggest flare since night. Oh, <laughs> 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 the Jodcast with the biggest flares. Fairs- oh. <laughs> this is so going but
8: it's literally cool. the best one. <laughs> the Jodcast. It's behind you.
6: Oh no, it isn't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: My little world. (laughs) Let's go again.
17: (laughs) With Megan Argo, Adam Avison, John Field, Stuart Harper, Leo Hookvale, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The Jogcast, May 2012 edition.
18: You don't have
12: John Field on
17: that list. I did, I said John Field. You did. Hello and welcome to the... Hello and welcome to... No, hang
14: on. I like the bit on the notes where it said about Dr. Ian's favorite lobster thermidor recipe. Oh, that was me. <laughs> Why does it say that? <laughs>
17: it
16: no, no, that, no that, that, that. Oh, okay.
14: <laughs> I missed that.
16: That, 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 that was me. It's like that was in an earlier version. Okay. So now everybody knows that Ian likes lobster thermidor. Who doesn't? Well oh, lobster indeed. thermidor. Um, something like you open up the lobster and take the meat and then puree it with cheese and then put it back in the lobster. Oh what
14: then... no, that sounds like an abomination.
16: Nobody <laughs> likes lobster <laughs> thermidor.
14: <laughs> Why would you ruin such a beautiful thing that's already so delicious? Anyway. All right. And now
16: on to the real podcast
12: Um <laughs> <laughs> But first before all of that, Mark talks to Peter Schmeichel. <laughs>
8: I wish. I wish. Shemmel, squeaky door, squeaky door ends. That's fine.
16: <laughs> <laughs> we all squeak sometimes. <laughs> so I, I just did the, uh, yeah, I did. Mark talks to Professor Francis Crims about lobster. Yeah. Okay. Go.
7: Cool. Uh, lobster and crab. No, no. Okay.
18: News <laughs> and news
17: news. Thanks for that, Megan.
12: No, no, you're still peeking.
8: And a little bit more of myself.
12: I think that's what that interview was about. Did you actually check? It is. Okay, talk about me. People have seen that Uranus was... Just so Uranus, shouldn't I? am always
11: do.
17: Another NASA mission is the first one, NASA. Yeah.
13: Okay. So pretty, pretty... So pretty big... Uh, sorry, Adam.
15: Well, speaking of important projects, here's Ian Morrison uh, describing the... the, Let me try that again. Speaking of important projects, here's Ian Morrison with this month's... Oh my god.
12: (laughs) And if you'd like to see what's in the night sky, here's Ian Morrison. uh, Do you want me to do it? it. I don't know what's going on anymore. Do you want us to do it? (laughs) Go on. So now we move on to the bit in the show where we fit in everything that can't go anywhere else. So who's going first? <coughs> <laughs> it's like we accentuate the <laughs> paper something. Stop it. Sorry, Mark.
4: <laughs> wait, wait. What's the order? <coughs>
12: Mm-mm.
13: I'm fine. I just need to sneeze. Keep going. It'll be fine.
12: <clears throat> but first, before all of that, Mark's talked to Peter S- Schemmel. I remember seeing that on BBC. <laughs> Which bit?
16: Just, just the news. I'm sorry, that wasn't supposed to be, like, funny. It was just...
12: Just like adding... I didn't like
8: Okay, let me interject with another comment instead.
12: You're <laughs> thinking of football now. Uh, it
16: it it may or may not
17: be called so This is like why I didn't delete that. It's the odds and ends section, and my microphone is drooping.
4: <laughs> That's a
3: bad problem. You should see, doctor. There's pills for that. Sorry, Mark.
17: Oh, mark, mark, mark. Don't put that in
6: And uh, they are hoping to have their first development... Ah!
12: Do I want to do every pronunciation?
17: Pronunciation?
12: <laughs> you got any more on that?
17: I don't think so.
14: I
12: think okay. that's
17: probably it. Another
14: boy? Can you turn my throat
11: Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat>
8: Despite the quality of the line points there, thank you very much, Dave, for joining us from Chile. Thank you. Oh, just say that again. Thank you. It's dropped out again. One more time. Thank
12: you. Meh.
8: Never mind. It keeps dropping in and out. Okay. Oh, wait, it came back then. Just do it one more time. Thank. Meh. Nah, never mind. I keep getting thank. That's all that comes through. Never mind, that's fine. I'm going to stop it. You can just leave it there. Yeah.
16: We received. <clears throat> Let me start over.
8: It is quite a nice idea. Maybe we can get you into read uh, The Night's nice sky in of poetry form.
1: Or get you into read some of his poems. Of Robert Frost. Hmm.
8: Hmm. Or a musical accompaniment, perhaps. Hmm.
1: Well, there's a constellation called Lyra the Lyre. Maybe we could have somebody, you know, strumming underneath him. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs>
8: I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. No. That was a perfectly reasonable comment. It just, it just... No,
12: it wasn't. Was... Again, more self
1: generated oh. posts. <laughs> um, <thank you. laughs>
8: Yes, maybe a, a liar accompaniment to, to Ian reading poetry.
4: And uh, Myth, he's listening to uh, the Jodcast on the train as he squeezes down the east coast. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> it squeezes down the east coast.
7: <laughs> okay, I won't paraphrase.
12: <laughs>
16: uh, Ellipses are ovals, kids, <laughs> except for they're more mathematical. <laughs>
12: It's
15: been cremated.
14: (laughs) Indy, I believe you have a postcard for us this time.
15: It's in my office.
14: Shall I pause it? Yeah, pause it.
12: Thanks for that, Adam. And in our second interview, Libby and Melanie spoke to Dr. Graeme Smith about gravitational lensing of... The... Um... 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 Um...
17: Um... uh,
12: Yeah, yeah. Um
6: Blah 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 blah
8: blah. Adam <laughs> can you put this in before the Jod on and before the thanks.
6: Yeah, that brings us to
12: the end of the show. Before we go we'd like to say congratulations too. So here it goes, to mate, Yeah. So it's time to thank Jordan oh, Should we do that again. I'm sorry. <laughs>
15: sorry.
14: <laughs>
12: Until
16: next time. Briny Deaths. (laughs) (laughs) And one more time.
14: (laughs) (laughs) And now for the weather. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What were we saying again? Sorry. Uh, Until 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 next
11: time.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. So until next time. Jod on. Bye. Bye. Bye.
7: Jod on. Jod on. Jod off. Jod.
8: (laughs) On. (laughs) Oh, Adam, I'm sorry.
17: Do I press stop? Are you still recording? Yeah. You
9: just say Avison. Avison. Avison.
1: Are you collecting those? <laughs> well, no, I just said Avacons. She said um... Abercrombie. And... I
17: can, wait. I can say it again. No, no it's fine.
11: <laughs> I, I
1: just imagine for a second you like had
13: this. You, you're collecting people saying your name. <laughs> I
17: do That's have a another one. Of the, like the bloopers and everything, and some of them are just people talking to so, me. So it was stop. Yeah, stop. We'll we'll, no, we'll, yeah, but... we'll we'll take the conversation yeah, but... offline.
14: Yeah, but Gael doesn't doesn't have the. the... We're punishing
16: <laughs> Adam enough.
14: Okay. <laughs> both,
16: both of you are buying Adam lots of beer later.
15: Yeah. All right, is it briny depths? Briny depths. Briny depths. Briny depths. Briny depths.
12: Thank you, Adam. Bye. Silence starts now.